everybody. Welcome to Player vs. Plot, the podcast where we take video game stories seriously. I am Lindsay, and with me, as always, Sterling, uh, and we've got yet another great episode for you today. <laughs> we have a lightning round episode. This is Chris, by the way. Um, we're doing a roguelike special. Yes. We're going to take you through the history of roguelikes, talk about what they have in common, what do roguelike elements usually contribute to a story, do they follow some kind of pattern, and uh, we'll try to talk a little bit about a classic roguelike and some modern roguelikes. For sure. I think this is my recent reignited obsession with Slay the Spire paying off in podcast form. Finally, a game where I'm not, I don't have to do any sort of homework. I'm like, perfect. This is what I've been putting all my time into anyway. Yeah. Yeah, and it's kind of like me towing the line of falling into another previous addiction of mine. Which is, do you uh, want to tell them what game you'll be covering well, for us today? Yeah, I'll be guiding everybody today through The Binding of Isaac, from Ooh. which, well, I won't say I'm guiding. Uh, we'll all be doing it, but... Well, I'll be following, it, that's not my favorite game. It was uh, definitely an obsession of mine. Got really into it in 2012, about a year after it came out, and... Boy, oh boy. That's a, it's a game. We'll get into it soon, though. <laughs> Great intro. Chris, which one will you be starting us off with? Uh, I will start us off with Rogue, and I'll give you, I'll kind of help fill in the details of what happened in the industry between each game we covered so you understand the context of where we're at. Especially because it's a huge jump. We're going from Rogue. We're going from 19. Binding of Isaac. Yeah. To 2011. 2011. To 2011. Oh, yes. And then to 2017. Yeah. It's, I mean, that's a lot of ground in there. So we will go in that order. Chronological, Rogue, Binding of Isaac, Slay the Spire, and take some pit stops in between to be like, how did we get from one of these to the next one? And as those of you who like roguelikes have already uh, kind of figured out, we're kind of skipping all of all of the main roguelike genre, <laughs> and we're going straight into hybrid games, I would say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So why don't we get this started and jump right into Rogue? So the Rogue begins like where pretty much all other RPGs begin, video game RPGs, with Dungeons and Dragons. Dungeons and Dragons comes out in 1973, the first uh, published version of the game. And as little as, I think, two years later, at on college campuses, on their big mainframe computers, the, the Play-Doh systems, uh, students who were supposed to be putting like you know their homework on like as a program on these computers. Uh, they were trying to figure out how to turn Dungeons and Dragons into a an electronic game, which bless them. Yes, I mean I I'm definitely not computer literate enough to be doing that, but spiritually I would have been with them at the time. Yeah, mm. and these are like big supercomputers that they're using. So the RPGs that we got from 1973 all the way through 1980, they are unbelievably advanced compared to what you might expect. Really. Right? By the time we get to 1980, we had stuff like Oubliette and Moria. These were games that had quote-unquote online multiplayer. People who were on the mainframe could play the game in your party. They had chat rooms. They had like Demon Souls-esque message boards, like where you can leave messages for people. Oh, that's awesome. They had more classes than had been seen in D&D at that point. They had like negotiation with monsters, stuff like that. My kind of RPG. 
all of the a lot of the uh, advancements that you would see throughout the eighties with RPGs happened on these computers, but no one could play them. Very so, like localized. Exactly, lot. you so. had to be a kid at one of these schools. So uh, the person who made Rogue, I believe, one of it's a collaborative work. One of the main names on it was Michael Toy. He played some of these Play-Doh games, although in his case, it was actually a Star Trek game. There was like a Star Trek strategy game on Play-Doh. It would be. And he decided he was going to take Dungeons and & Dragons, and he was going to convert that into his into uh, an RP, uh, electronic RPG. And he kind of came at it from a totally different place from where uh, the Play-Doh programmers were going at it, right? So were the previous ones... Before this, more of the, like, you type something in, and it ha- those kind of games where it's like a screen of text, and you just um, type in your action, and maybe something happens? The Even the original had some very primitive graphics. Like map kind of system? Yes. Okay. But there was still a lot of text. By the time you got to, like, 1980, there actually were a lot of graphics involved in, okay. in these games. They looked almost exactly like wizardry. There's actually... There's a little bit of a scandal. If you've ever heard of Wizardry, like one of the, 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 it's like the bedrock of modern RPGs along with Ultima. So does that mean that it was like at signs and periods and not like... yet? No, they had like little pictures of, oh wow, even some of them were more text oriented, but they had little pictures. Rogue kind of independently created RPGs separately from that. That's why it looks okay. so different, right? Rogue was, uh, came out around the same time as arguably the first roguelike, which is funny to say. But there was a game called Beneath Apple Manor, a game in which you had to go through randomly generated mazes. <laughs> Apple Manor? Yeah. Why, it was, is it, what, why is it called Apple Manor? Do we because, know? Because uh, your goal in the game was to go through this dungeon to the bottom and get a golden apple and then come back up and escape this dungeon. All right. So the classic, Yeah. you descend and you have to climb back yeah. out of it. And it was for the Apple II home computer. So I had a feeling it was going to be on a, on a Mac. Uh, well, remember, because the Apple II, one of the first widely used personal computers. I am right? such a Windows for life person that I didn't even, that didn't even cross my mind. Yeah, like, well, yeah it, it was, was an a Apple computer. Time I was like, oh. Then. Well, because now nowadays we think of computers as very modular things, but that was an era when like personal computers were not like something you put together necessarily. It was just, you bought an Apple II. You bought right. a Commodore 64. right. And games just ran on that or they didn't, right? So, so then this Apple Manor game exists independently of independently Rogue. They're of coming Rogue. out at the same time. But Apple Manor is a little ahead of it? It is uh, two years ahead of Rogue. Okay. But the reason I bring it up is because unlike those other games, this actually looks almost just like Rogue. There's two graphics modes. There's color and black and white. Color is uh, just like little like rows of hallways, essentially, that are just lines on the screen and there's differently colored boxes, and you would have to look in the manual to see what color represented what. But if you put it in black and white mode, everything was uh, rendered using characters on your keyboard. Okay. So, like, you can't tell if a block is blue, so instead there might just be, like, an I or an, a D or something. I got it. Okay. Right? Um, Rogue happened because the person who was making these, like, little text-based adaptations of D&D in his spare time found this library, and a library is ba- basically, like, Think of it as like a set of tools, like a set of things pre-made for you to use to make right. programs okay. with. Primitive RPG maker. Um, well, anything maker, right? <laughs> Everything needs to use some kind of pre-made. <laughs> like if you if you go out and say like, I'm going to make the, the next Photoshop, you're not going to start with how do I make colors here on the screen, right? <laughs> so the thing- the How do I make a computer? Him, exactly, right? 
So the, the breakthrough for him was he found a library that allowed you to move the position of the cursor. So like what, where you were typing or where like characters were displaying and put it in an arbitrary place on the screen. Mm-hmm. And you can also put text in arbitrary places on the screen. So he realized I can take text and I can literally draw my dungeons for Dungeons and Dragons. And those can be like, that can be the map that I'm exploring. Do you want to like paint a word picture of what yeah. Rogue? I mean, you mean besides the way Rogue uh, yeah, already yes. does? I like it if you haven't seen it. So this Rogue, is helpful, yes. and also we'll throw up a picture on our Instagram. It's, so head over like, there to see it too. It's like uh, watching a moving ASCII art, kind of like you're seeing. Sure, I'm gonna nod. Wait, wait is that ASCII? Yes. Is this, is it, have I been saying it wrong? Is I don't it, know. <laughs> I've only heard. I've only seen it written down. Wait, I don't wait, even did know you what call that it is. an ASCII? ASCII. Why wouldn't you call it? That, that sounds like like a butt. Like I know. Like that's why I chose that. <laughs> I've always like again. Like I'm still in the page. Where I don't know what that is. ASCII is like like on forums. Like people would paint like uh, pictures. Oh, like the like letters. So, and stuff. Yeah, using letters, putting them all in different oh positions. I didn't know that pictures. had a name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A-S-C-I-I this is so exciting. Art. The reason it's called that is because it's the 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 standard for text and computers. Okay. At one point it was A N S I, now it's A S C I I. How else would you even possibly pronounce that? Apparently ASCII. 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 I got I gotta say ASCII's where I would go with that. I just assumed you just said all the letters like an acronym. That's a mouthful. Maybe. I mean, I think that's probably right. But I have a platform now, and I'm going to use it to say ASCII. <laughs> Is this going to be like the GIF gif <laughs> I was gonna say, argument? Just wait till we weigh in on that. Oh boy! So he d- he created a, a program that randomly generated um, sets of these letters to create corridors and rooms, and put monsters represented by single letters in it. Had the like Apple Manor. Was that also randomly generated? Yes, that okay. was also because that is generated. the key part of a roguelike. That's right. However, Rogue was a little bit more sophisticated. It had like a well, it was still less of a less true to D and D than maybe some of the Play-Doh games were because it was working with less, you know, processing power and, okay. and storage. It doesn't um, get a whole college campus worth of computer. Exactly. So you, you only had a few stats. You had your gold, your experience. You had just strength. Uh, no dexterity or anything like that. Oh my gosh, Those I couldn't play stats. the game. I need dex. <laughs> get rid of strength. All dex. And uh, you had your hit points. And the goal of the game was to dis- you were it actually came with a text file telling you the story. So you were a relatively new addition to a fighters guild. Classic. You had just finished your first year, and you're given a task. You have to descend into the dungeons of doom. Okay, sorry to pause it. Uh huh. But I have a question. That's like a classic. We're starting a campaign opening to me now, living in 2020, and not super well versed in D and D. Aside from a little bit here and there, oh yeah, was that a cliche at the time? Too? Oh yeah, okay. like, like, most of like the the one offs, like are the man. What are they called? I'm drawing modules? a blank. Thank you, modules. Well, even even if you if you were to open up the original D and D, like original uh, people literally call it O D and D, right? Like okay. the first publication of it, it. It's it's addressed toward the game runner, the the dungeon master. It tells you, okay, here's your first session. You are going to map six floors of a dungeon. Each floor is going to get harder. Here are the monsters that will appear on each floor. You will note that each each floor has like a bigger chance of a dragon or a Medusa or something. And your players are going to go through these floors, explore all the rooms, try to get treasure, because treasure is how you level up, and get to the bottom or as far as they can get, and then escape. 
Okay. And that is what uh, Rogue is. That's what D&D was. To That's what D&D was. You just was. get into your dungeon and then get out. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Now, oh, D&D also, of course, at the, especially by that point, supported all kinds of other things you right. could do with it. Right. But that was the basic assumption of what you would start Here's, with. Not to pull us off on another tangent when we've just started the story of Rogue, but where does that concept come from? The underworld? You, the idea that a hero's job is to... Oh. Go down and get gold and then leave. Like, I understand I know, conceptually. I know the answer to this too. Okay. Wait, I understand is it conceptually. The hero's journey. No, no, no. So, no, Lindsay's asking a very good question. Because I've said, and I understand that conceptually, the idea of a hero descending to get something yeah. does exist. And how much of that is Far D&D? back into classic <laughs> mythology. Right. But that transition from a hero descends to get something and then has to escape into. Exactly. Well, I guess a fantasy adventurers have to go level by level. Right. And when when did dungeon crawling become such a big part yeah. of, of the hero's journey from a fantasy point yes, of view? Right? Yes. Because it, it wasn't really like in vogue in the fantasy fiction that Dungeons and Dragons was taking from. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons and all the games that, you know, took inspiration from it, like Final Fantasy and this, it was inspired by stuff by like Jack Vance mm-hmm. and uh, Fritz Lieber, people who okay. were writing... Uh, what what you would call uh, what's that French genre of fiction a picaresque, where essentially it's about these lovable rogues who yes, they're just yeah. trying to make money however right. they can. They always lose all the money at the end and start back over. Like Uncharted, like that. Yeah, that's a picaresque. Perfect, right? It's like that, or like Conan is another okay. element that inspired the one. The detective child. No, the barbarian. Oh, okay. Um. <laughs> But uh, these were stories about like very science fantasy worlds, very different from what you kind of do at the beginning of D&D when you're going into this dungeon, yeah. right? And of course, in mythology, we have like, you know, going into the Minotaur's maze and like, or the right. labyrinth and going, descending down into, into Hades yeah. to get- Everyone's well, down in like Tartarus all the time. Exactly. Getting whatever they need. Um, so the reason this turns it on the way into out. dungeon crawling, right? And I guess it's worth bringing up. Uh, D&D was not always called D&D. It was a, it was a war game called a Bronstein. Yep. So there were all these war games that people were playing. And one day someone said, Hey, what if we did a war game where not all of the play was us moving our units around? What if we like pretended like we were the people in the city and like, we did this like diplomacy like game, but what it was different from diplomacy is once we've resolved what happens in the city, then that will like affect what happens in our war game board, right? Okay, that's which is so. Is it like a game awesome. within the game? So it's like, oh, exactly. we're going to have this battle, like, but in yeah, the battle, the we're going to have persona. yeah. So take these war games and like add these social elements and like these diplomacy elements around it, right? So then here comes a guy named Dave Arneson. Okay, he says, "What if I took Bronstein and I ran it in a fantasy world for just like a handful of people?" So he ran this thing called the Fantasy Campaign, air quotes, and they did this whole story about repelling these invaders to this world called Blackmore, and his players pretty much defended the realm, they conquered everything, they're like, what do we do now? Like, I want to, like, move my lord who is, like, like stronger now, he's leveled up, and I want to do more stuff with him. And he's like, I don't know, uh, you found there's a prison under your castle, and... <laughs> Uh, maybe there's stuff you can look for in there. So they go down into the prison under the castle and they explore and they're like, whoa, that was fun. Is there any more? He's like, yes. <laughs> and he, Wide-eyed, he is a very like, racing. yes. He, Arneson was a very like, will, he was willing to improvise, right? 
Which so, is as any good D uh, DM well, should. Exactly. Yeah. So he just kept adding more and more layers to this prison, the dungeon, the oubliettes, uh, under the castle, and then he started adding more fantasy elements in those dungeons. So like now there's a dragon. Well, it was Here's vampires first. Oh, of so, course like, it was. The, there was a big part of the campaign was them trying to figure out what to do with this huge faction of vampires. Run away. He realized one of his favorite parts. Yeah. <laughs> one of his favorite parts of the game was when the players would do something other than just go and use the war game rules to attack the vampires. They would go do other things. They would negotiate with them. Right. They would use the environment to like give them an advantage to fight the vampires. And he was like, this is... A new kind okay. of game. So this is kind of not to, I don't want us to get too lost because yes. this is also super interesting. Yeah. But so that's kind that, of the yes. birth of that that's association. D &D. That makes so much sense. Well, when, it's not just the association. That game, he, he went and published like, that exact like reports game. about it. Oh. Not the game, reports about oh, Was he like working for the government doing like the war game types of stuff? Or? <laughs> I don't know if he was working for the government, but there were all these like little like independent magazines that were in publication at the time, and he would publish reports of this. Like, you laughed, Lindsay, but I know people that like actually run some of these things for the government in weird test scenarios. Oh, I know, I, like yeah. a tabletop. Yeah, like they, yeah, they, exercise. they yeah. yeah. No, the government, don't, don't get me wrong. There's all sorts of weird stuff happening. Just yeah. in the name of government. So fast forwarding real fat, like real quick, he published all this stuff about this game. He's like, this is the most amazing thing ever. A guy who worked for this insurance company named Gary Gygax saw this, these articles. And he was like, I got to go work with this guy. He went and met Dave. Oh, I love that. He found his calling. He was, like, yeah, he, he just saw read this. it. He's like, this is awesome. And he got off. Well, of he was already into war games and but made yes. it happen. Well, he went Still, and found Dave Arneson. Like imagine reading something really inspirational online even. And then you and go find like, that person. I really like what this person is doing. Yeah. And take action. That is true. That's, That's pretty so cool. great. You always wish you could do that, right? Uh, yes. You can. So just do it. Gygax went and found Arneson. They collaborated and they made the first uh, publication of Dungeons and Dragons. And that's that game uh because he was kind of still going off of what arneson you know was working with in his campaign they were like let's play it safe let's do what arneson was doing and make that the basis of the game because you know it kind of worked onto that right so um that's why dungeons and dragons started as a game primarily about exploring those dungeons because that was the first successful campaign of dungeons and dragons that's so cool before it was called that oh course. i'm glad i asked and I'm extra um, glad you knew. Guys, I am fucking real into <laughs> tabletop RPGs. <laughs> All right. So I know. I know. I know flashback to Rogue. So yeah. Rogue is that. We start the same way. You're an adventurer. You got to go into this dungeon and do dungeon things. Right. So what does Rogue add, right? So Dungeons and Dragons was fundamentally a resource management game. You're going into the dungeon. You have limited life. You have limited food, light, things like that, right? Rogue kind of turns that into mostly two or three resources, you have your life, you have your food, and you have your gold. Rogue wants you to get all the way to the bottom, picking up food, eating monsters if you have to whenever you can, and then you have to grab this amulet of Yender, and then you have to go all the way back Wait, up. who's who's Yender? Nobody knows. Okay. <laughs> what does the amulet was, do? Well, was that, it doesn't do anything. I have so many I questions. Think. Is this all being told to you in the text file? Um, actually the text file does tell you this, but the game also tells you, you need to go get the amulet of Yender. Okay. So you, you never know why you never you know, know why. what it does or who I mean, Yender is. But I mean, similarly at the beginning of Indiana Jones, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you don't know why he's grabbing this idol. 
Right. I mean, there's no reason because for... Because it belongs in a museum. Okay. Yeah, but... I think your guild wants whatever power <laughs> this amulet yields. Sure. But what I think is interesting about this Maybe they is, have their own museum. Maybe they do. And it needs to go in that museum. I mean, but in the world of D&D, they probably want to do something bad with it. They want to do something bad with it? Not like like wear it. a fighter's guild. What do they want Aww, with this Oh, that's true. Maybe it makes you a real good fighter. Okay, Maybe. just question though, real fast. So, uh, but if it's already on display in this dungeon, isn't that like a museum? No, you have to fight your way to get there. What if you had to fight your way every time you wanted to go to the Met? Sometimes I think you, that would be... You have to make your way through Medusa's. Yeah, and, and dragons. Like once, that sounds I saw, like the subway to me. <laughs> once I saw a really, really long line at the Met, and it was raining, and I was like, I don't need to see any Monets today. I can't imagine if I had to go through like <laughs> levels of a dungeon. It was like, you want your Renoir? You're gonna have to fight two Medusas and five yeah. dragons. So, and and again, you're not like guaranteed to be able to make it because if you if you run out of resources and. You made enough mistakes at the beginning of your run, and now you're seven levels deep, and you die, you're just dead. Yeah. So that's one of the... I guess we should talk real quick about what are the mainstays of roguelikes that get introduced in this game. Yeah. Right? So probably... Definitely the, the procedural... The procedural generation. Yeah, where things are different every time, and it's kind of random, but with parameters, usually. And not just the dungeon, but also like the items you find, yes. what enemies appear. Yes. Um, and they all follow patterns... But it's not always the same. Right. And I guess, as we said, the permadeath. So like yes. you dying, the game's over, and you have a completely new procedurally generated exactly. world to explore. Which I think I'm not a huge... I don't replay a lot of video games. Like if it's not called Dragon Age, I'm probably not replaying it. Mm-hmm. But roguelikes, first of all, they're intentionally shorter generally you yeah usually and then every time i play it i feel like i have learned something that will help me and it's going to be different so i'm not really playing the same game i just played yes. i'm playing something a little bit different there's definitely some kind of progress of the player's knowledge and skill that's being developed through the game right? yeah or your appreciation for the world maybe not much of one in rogue but eventually this that becomes a huge deal in right likes. right um another element i would say that's very important is the clock if i had okay. to break down what are the three key elements of a roguelike one procedural generation two some kind of heavy price to pay for failure mm-hmm. and three is a pressure to keep moving forward and to make good use of resources so let's apply that to a few different things, right? Like you have like uh, the Binding of Isaac, for example. You have limited hearts. You have limited keys and bombs. You have Eventually you run out of rooms to explore, so you have to keep going. Every time you go deeper, the monsters get stronger. So you are kind of measuring your own progress versus how the dungeon is getting scaled up yeah. as well. That's like a core element of a roguelike, right? Um, yeah. That- it become, we'll, we'll tackle it when we get there, but it's very explicit in Slay the Spire because the concept of risk-reward is... Explicit. Yeah. Yes. They say it like right at the beginning. And the creator also talks about it a lot in some of the, the interviews I saw too. Yeah. So it's interesting how it's definitely a part of the genre. And in one of the most recent examples we'll talk about... They're like, yeah, it's it's just part of the text. It's not meta, yeah. it's not sub, it's just it's in it. And and inevitably when when you follow genre conventions for mechanics, you know, your narrative ends up becoming influenced by that as well, yeah. right? Yeah. So they might have similar messages because of the 
limitations of the genre. Exactly. Yeah. So a few things that I think narratively that kind of come from Rogan, you'll see pop up over and over. And the one element of, of the world and the story is scarcity, right? Like in yeah. a roguelike, your character is usually in a position where time or maybe weaponry or something like that is very limited. And as part of that... Your health is normally the big... That's the big one. Limit. But also, because your resources are limited, you need to scavenge. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably one of the most interesting things about a roguelike. I would say this applies to almost every roguelike I've played, is your ability improvement and like the items you pick up, the choices you make in the dungeon fundamentally change your character. So mm -hmm. a character that you play on one run through any given roguelike is definitely going to be different from the final state of another character. You How do you think your character develops in Rogue? So in Rogue, it would be mostly what are you carrying, right? Like what magic wands are you keeping with you? What potions are you keeping? How are you feeding yourself? How are you, how are you feeding yourself? Do you, do you think you specialize in Rogue? I would say less so in Rogue. Okay. Um, in Rogue, I think your inventory is the big determinant, determining okay. factor. As, like Batman. You're like, yes. I picked up all this stuff and now I'm going to use it. Now, this is where it's a little bit, some people might be a little disappointed that we were only using Rogue for this example because throughout the 80s and then through the 90s, roguelikes got real fucking crazy. Like, really? Imagine if you are a developer and you want to make the most advanced games there are. Your big limitation, every time, every time you add a new feature, mm -hmm. you need to design a user interface for it. You need to design graphics and animations and sounds. And you can't do all this stuff by yourself, but you can when the graphics are just letters on the screen. <laughs> and so roguelikes got impossibly detailed worlds. You can do that any action sense. you can think of. Yeah. Like it, like in NetHack, probably the most indulgent of these roguelikes, at least in the 90s. You can like go and like, actually, this is a very simple interaction. This isn't a lot of them. You have a potion. You think maybe it might be poison because another thing about roguelikes is you often so don't know what potions do. Could you like put it on something? You could be like, I'm going to dip my sword in the potion. And then the game will be like your sword dissolved in the potion. Oh, yeah. I've heard of this one. So you're like, I need to write down that this is a poison. This is acid. Right. And then later you see uh, Medusa and you're like, I don't know how to fight her. I don't have a sword. I'm going to throw <laughs> I'm gonna throw my potion at her. And, and then she it. gets acided. Okay. Right? Things like that. Cool. Right? That is really cool. Or like you find a fountain. I'm going to pour my poison into the fountain. Now it's a poison fountain. Stuff like that. That is cool. So that's where kind of one branch of roguelikes like kind of evolved mm -hmm. and are still evolving today. I think. And I do. I assume rogue was really popular. Because oh yeah. It's where this genre gets its name from. Absolutely. Okay. Probably the height of that kind of approach to development. Even though this is not a roguelike, but Dwarf Fortress, you probably know. Oh yeah, it. yeah. It's like a reality simulator, right? It, it simulates like who who knows how many things that I can't even list that, that game. Right now. That game is just a treat. Um, that's kind of like the logical endpoint of the, the the mentality that popped up in the 80s and 90s, which is let's use this format to make the most detailed world we possibly can. But then some people went in a different direction. You had things like uh, She Ran the Wanderer and, and like the Torneco's Great Adventure. Like these are... Um, like the dragon, some of the Dragon Quest people, some other console developers, they were like, how do we take this thing we love, Rogue, 
And how do we make it more palatable for a modern audience? Right. right? Because okay. I know a lot of people don't want to look at a little at symbol, exactly. walk around a bunch of periods and then through yeah. X's and yeah. Yeah. So like, right, right. For example, you have she ran the wanderer, pretty traditional roguelike, but you can like find these storehouses and you can like store like special swords and stuff away. And then like a later version of you can go find oh, it on a different cool. run. Um, the graphics were getting very detailed. They had all kinds of like, Iconic characters. You could be a chocobo who went into like a roguelike dungeon. Wow. We had Diablo. Yeah. Diablo was a roguelike originally. Uh, and then they said, what if we just got turned off the default permadeath, set the turn speed to maximum, and set it so that you're taking turns even if you don't want to be taking turns? That's how Diablo works. Oh. It's the same fundamental engine uh, that would have been used for a roguelike that turn into this kind of pseudo action game. Exactly. I don't know uh, much about the original Diablo, but was that also procedurally generated dungeons? Yes. Okay, so that's so that Diablo 2 was different in that it had like the set. No, Diablo 2 is also Is it really? Yeah. Now the areas still follow patterns. Oh. You still have this area, that area, but the floor plans are still procedurally generated. Okay, I see. I, I just played Diablo 2 once when I was like, I mean, how would you know? Unless you play this game right. many times, right. you wouldn't notice. Right. So I just learned something new. Very um, cool. So yeah, you had all these people dipping their toes in the genre. Another notable early one, um, which I think will transition nicely, is Baroque. It was a Sega oh, Saturn game. Is. It was a Japanese action game that was also a roguelike. And you were you had to go up this tower. It's another one that went upward. And you would like shoot things and fight things with the sword. Because it was like pseudo, like like modern day also. Shooting things <laughs> okay. with a sword or Shooting do you have like a and, gun? And also using a sword. <laughs> oh, okay. Like a gun and a sword, whatever. Like a sword I, gun. You have modern weaponry. You shoot swords. What is this like? <laughs> Everything is in this game, right? Um, and then whenever you beat it, you learn more about a story. Oh, like you learn more about the game. world. Yes. And even if you died, you actually learn more about the story. That's awesome. Every run progresses like your knowledge of the world. That's and super cool. So I don't remember how successful Baroque was, but it definitely wasn't the last time people mixed action games and roguelikes. That happened multiple times after that. But I think the turning point uh, was a game called Spelunky. Oh, oh is, yeah. was, was Spelunky out before two, Binding of Isaac? 2008. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh, I didn't I realize Spelunky yeah. was that old. It was a free game for a long time. Is a it lot not of indie free games. anymore? No, yeah, they charge it's on for it. Now. Yeah. You have to keep in mind the 2000s, like no one believed in That's true. paying for games on like, like indie, or indie games. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you could get Flash games for free. So why should I pay this guy for his thousands of I mean, hours I remember when, when Minecraft was first out and they were just like, hey, anybody who found this link test this and i was like oh okay and mm-hmm. i tested it. i'm like yeah this is cool and five years later like i blink and everyone's playing it and you yeah. pay for it sometimes and it gets a little bit more expensive every year it's very bizarre <laughs> <laughs> no like that's the model that's the it was like the start of the minecraft and uh mountain blade were the two games that started the whole if you buy it now you pay five dollars Next year, it's 10. The year after, it's 15, and so on. Which, I mean, you know what? That's the dream, right? Is to mm-hmm. have some indie game that takes off when it's very cheap, and then you profit off of it. Exactly. After it's- I heard they're coming out with Mountain Blade 2 soon. Yes. Uh, that is huge news. You don't even know. Yeah. You know what that is? It's like Winds of Winter level. I know. It's. I'm just like, it was like, what? I love <laughs> that that's the one you guys are on about, and not like what, Half-Life VR. That is also a really The ultimate deal. thing that... 
which maybe never was that going is, to happen. This is also Look, a big deal. I'm just going to say. The Mountain Blade just happened like today. Yeah, oh, today. like today. Well, that'll date that. So yeah, whatever. It's fine. But <laughs> I'm just going to say. People are frantically half, searching. Half life. When did this news come out? They're like, wow, these guys take forever to look up the news. <laughs> but I'm just going to say, I have, uh, after Duke Nukem forever, I have like tempered expectations towards anything that has waited this long to release. That's me with allegedly Beyond Good and Evil 2, which we saw a little of and then nothing for a while and then a lot of and then nothing for a while. I think they negatively announced it this year. I think they said you're not going to see any new footage. <laughs> yeah, I know. I I love the first Beyond Good and Evil and everything about the new one I do not understand. But maybe we'll cross that bridge one day in a Beyond I Good and Evil so. episode, which is not a roguelike. Not a roguelike, but a game we want to get to. A really cool game. Um, so let's. So move it sounds on like to, like we just got to like the hybridization of roguelike. Exactly. So, I, so they they had dipping it its toes into other genres. So but Spelunky. Spelunky was the big one that really like. I mean, Spelunky is a full on action platformer game, and it is also full on a roguelike in probably the most abstract ways you can imagine. Right, like it has all of these elements for sure. But it also looks like as little like a roguelike as you could imagine something looking. Yeah. Um, and it's that adorable. took off. Yeah. Well, and yeah, it's the adorable element. You know, you got you package it well with like making it look nice and people will buy it. How much story is there to that? I know I could never get into Spelunky. It, I mean, there's a little bit of story to it. Like you're you exploring some ruins. You go deep. There's some hidden exits and endings and, you know. That it's, is also a very literal, it's got that dungeon descent thing yes. that I think is apparently a Which centerpiece is, yeah. of, the, of the genre. Either ascent or descent, pretty big deal. Yeah. Even in games where it doesn't really matter, like Dream Quest, like it's all dreams, so who cares what the structure is, but they still make a big deal of it being levels one, two, three, vertically ascending. Interesting. But at this point, roguelikes had gone to so many different places, you know, They've got benefits on death. You can carry over progress. Action does, elements. There's yeah. the one roguelike where you... Enter the gungeon? No. Like your kid yes, is the next Rogue one. Legacy. Oh, okay. yeah. Rogue Legacy. That came after Binding of Isaac. I would say, I would actually say for the mainstream audience and not just game designers, Rogue Legacy, just, I fucking hate that game. I don't <laughs> I think it's a good game. It. it is a shitty Castlevania game attached to a... a <laughs> Like uh, rogue-like progression mechanics and badly generate. I'm sorry, but it's a very important game because that is probably the 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 spark along with the Binding of Isaac that launched roguelites. Um, that Binding of Isaac did, and Faster Than Light. Did you say roguelike or rogue light? Ro- the the quote unquote <laughs> roguelite, which nowadays we think of a roguelite as a roguelike plus some other genre. Okay. But at the time, roguelite was being used to refer to games that had gentler death mechanics, which was Rogue Legacy. Rogue Legacy's pitch is, this is a roguelite. But is Binding it, of Isaac? No, I wouldn't okay. say so. I don't it think, has unlocked. I don't think anything about Binding of Isaac is, is light. <laughs> gentle or light. Nowadays, we would call it that. I think I still think that that term, even though I am a huge roguelike fan, I think that term's a little needlessly patronizing. I Complex. Guess. There's no need roguelike. to really like yeah. distinguish it well, because right. when you're looking for something in that genre, I assume you're looking for something that is procedurally generated, encourages shorter runs, so you do multiple mm-hmm. attempts, and has to do with some sort of balancing resource management with progression. 
right? Yes, yes. And I, I feel like all of these games have they all those have things. It, for sure. I don't know what would make it more. I think the other element of the light is when you compare it to something like like NetHack or Caves of Cud or one of those like really detailed roguelikes okay. with all the things to consider. They are simpler, but they're also very elegant. Yes, you know, um, streamlined. And they, yeah. they, they, I think they have a better packaging, almost like they have a better look. Certainly to more them. palatable. Yes, for sure. So Spelunky was very popular, right? Yes, and that it's helped bring it to the still forefront. popular. Yes. Do you and think that? Yeah, it is. Do you think that helps pave the way then for the success of Binding of Isaac? I think so. Oh, I think for sure. Ed, Edmund, or is it Edward? Ed, Ed, Edmund McMillan. I think he would agree that it paved the way. Okay. And of course, Binding of Isaac and Faster Than Light and A Rogue Legacy, those, I would say those three games especially are responsible for where we are now, which is there are Mega Man roguelikes. There's oh, like, roguelikes oh, on roguelikes on roguelikes. Yeah. There, any, any genre you can imagine. Uh, now that I think about it, tactical RPGs, there's roguelikes for those now. Yeah. There's, uh, what is it? Uh, the robot one made by the people who made Faster Than Light. Into the Breach. Yes, yes. Into the Breach. Yes. That's it. So That one's cool. Binding of Isaac, then, is that the first one to kind of, it has that top down? It was the down. first one to catch my attention. Goodness yes. gracious, here we go. It is so many elements. That's one thing I love about Binding of Isaac is you look at Rogue Legacy. Boy, I hate to beat up on this game, but... In my cynical mind, I look at Rogue Legacy. Cynical Chris. I think, okay, uh, let's take this mediocre version of Castlevania. Let's procedurally generate the levels. Let's add some kind of progression element. Done. Right? I can see how that could be a a big seller. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, I bought it. I had fun with it. When you look at Binding of Isaac, and if I, my description of Binding Isaac would be take a roguelike, okay, then take a dual stick shooter. Like Robotron or or like, Smash uh, TV or yeah. something like that, and then take the original Legend of Zelda, <laughs> and then take this very strong and very prevalent throughout narrative of child abuse. And by the way, this is a content warning for anyone. Uh, when we get into Binding of Isaac, there's going to be some disturbing material that we'll discuss. Yeah, it's, I, it's, it's a little. Um, you know, I, I I'm just gonna like like maybe anecdotal story right now. Well, but, well, but hold on one second. Okay. If you take all of these elements, I don't think any of them immediately tell you this is a winner. No, no, right? not like, at all. They're not like obvious, but the Binding of Isaac. Except for I did hear Legend of Zelda in there, which well, is always the sign of As long like, as that's oh, original there. Legend of Zelda. It's like blah, 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 times a million. <laughs> yeah, I can see that being a big number. So you put all of them together into this very weird and eccentric and and idiosyncratic package. And I think what makes it so special is you can kind of understand why each of those elements exists in the game. You can see how they contribute to it. And the Binding of Isaac ends up not really feeling like a love letter to any specific thing. It feels like its own thing. Yeah. It's consciously doing what it thinks it needs to do to tell a story. Right. And and so what's, uh, Sterling, you had a story. So, yeah, my, my anecdotal, anecdotal story is kind of how I originally pitched what this game was to somebody I was just about to start dating back in 2012. This is an interesting dating move. Is that me? No. Oh, <laughs> I um, can't remember when we started dating. <laughs> so I, I was living in D.C. at the time, and... Between working on Capitol Hill and reading uh, Game of Thrones, I was this playing Game Sterling of uh, Binding of Isaac. Lists his resume. No, working I'm not on Capitol Hill, <laughs> reading Game of Thrones and playing Binding of Isaac. 
I can't see where any of this doesn't turn into a penny dropper. <laughs> right. So anyways, uh, I was really excited because it was the first time I'd ever beaten like the game uh, Binding of Isaac. And I was going out on a date and I was just like, man, I beat the game la- the game last night. Whoa. Little, you your confidence little did I know that it was not even close to beating the game yet. But anyways, uh, she was like, so what is this game about? And I was like, oh, because from Sterling's perspective, a major milestone in his life had just been passed. Yeah. Now, did she, was she someone who was interested in video games? She wasn't really interested in it, but like, you know. She was trying because she was cute. You know what? She was a good listener. Yes. (laughs) So anyways... I, I'm like, she's like, so what's, what's it about? And I'm like, it's a big pitch to anyone, yo, oh. especially someone who isn't like in that. Let me tell you about this game. I'm playing all this poop. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Kids naked too. So, <laughs> so I was like, um, well, so the game starts off and your mother is like watching televangelized Christian stuff and hears the voice of God and it tells her you need to kill your son and you're playing as the son and you run into the basement to run away from your mother who's trying to kill you and the only weapon you have are your tears and you have to go and kill all sorts of, uh, well, let's just get the, the content warning now, like aborted kids and like uh, monsters and poop monsters and just gross, gross, so gross just things. imagine any gross thing. It's in there somewhere. Yeah. I, this is and a good time for me to go on the record as saying I do not like The Binding of Isaac. So we are we are polar opposites on this game. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I gave that pitch and somehow we went on a date for two years. So, <laughs> so it was we went a on pitch. a date for two years? He's saying that date lasted forever. Wow. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. Yeah, after, uh, after that conversation, it must have felt like it. <laughs> You're purposely being dense right now. Okay. So anyways, that was my elevator pitch of this game. There's And, and he prefaced it with, I need to tell you about something very important to me. <laughs> this game means a lot to me. And it's, it's the most uh, recent accomplishment. It's uh, quintessential to my being at the moment. Oh my gosh. So anyway, I'm shooting my tears at this shit sound. <laughs> yes. So I, I, I don't need to get any more into that. But the story starts off with exactly like I said. You I, sorry. Before we get into it, I think that we should maybe try to describe what the art is like because I yeah. think that style is part of part of what turns me off about the game, but an important part of yeah. it setting a tone for its story. It's, I mean, first thing is it, it looks like a flash game. It was it is, a flash it game. A it flash was a flash game. game to start off with, and then they updated it later and made it more. Pixelated? Yeah, I guess so. I don't know what the real word word is for it. Oh, it's you know what? They made it not vector graphics. Yeah. That's what Flash uses. Okay. Yeah, and so they updated it and changed a little bit of the graphics. So when I I first started playing back in 2012, which was a year after it came out in 2011, it was still Flash-based. And it's a very cute kind of style, which doesn't fit with the tone of the game in the slightest. I would say that the line art is cute. So the way that the characters are designed in shape and like with their kind of yeah. chibi eyes and yeah. stuff like They're that. Very iconic. Large however, large head, large eyes. They're like walking emoji. Yeah. However, the color palette that is used does not vibe with that. It's very dreary, it kind of very brown. greens and browns I would say red, and grays. Brown and pink. Yeah. Probably the most common colors. Mm-hmm. Everything is very fleshy. Looking. Yes, fleshy is a good word. For it's not a reason, too, unfortunately. 
it like sometimes when I watch it, it makes me nauseous. I'm just like, this is, and it's not even the gross things in the game don't have to be happening on screen. I'm just like this color palette oh, and the sound nauseous. direction is brilliant. It is. Yeah. It's so gross. I think I, I do the music in Binding of Isaac and I'll compare it a little bit to Slay the Spire because they take similar cues, I think, and having not really sat with either of the music on its own very much, but they both take some cues from your kind of classical music, especially in the way that classical music gets adapted into big movie soundtracks. But Binding of Isaac chooses to use a chorus in a terribly grating fashion that makes you think like, ooh, no thanks. Mm-hmm. And kind of this like sparing piano tunes, yeah. very sharp, not as in like literally is it tonally I, I sharp, but sharp as in like grating. Like, like it's it, when you hear it at the like, there's like a little piano interlude at the beginning of each level too, right? Is that like is that designed to sound like discordant? I think so. Again, I didn't look at the the notations for the sheet music or anything, but it definitely means, I think it, it's trying to make you feel an emptiness when it, mm-hmm. it is a hundred percent trying to make you feel some sort of emptiness. It's supposed to make you uncomfortable and just unhappy almost. Yes. I think and discomfort is the name of the game. <laughs> creatively, this game wants you to feel like everything is terrible. I'm just well, quoting the game. Well, that's and actually an achievement too. Yes. Uh, everything is gross and terrible and ugly and, and, and sad, but also it's like reveling in that because everything is smiling at you in the game. And, and like, there's all these elements of cuteness and like the game is in on a joke about itself. And that's kind of the unique tone of a lot of i think mcmullen's games right and but especially this one. yeah and, I, and i'll touch a little bit on McMill, uh, edmund mcmillan's other games uh, in a little bit but for now i'll just wrap up the story yeah, because sorry, there we are the scene i think i think it's it, such a mood this yes. game and I, I say the same about slay the spire both of them really use mood and i think that it helps to have that history of roguelikes yeah. already established where they can say okay what else can we do with this genre? Let's exactly. take well, these things and make the player feel a certain way. And if you haven't played Binding of Isaac, listen to what Sterling is about to tell you and, and ask yourself, how do you turn this into those three elements we were just discussing? And, and also, how do you turn this into something that Sterling would be willing to sink almost <laughs> like 500 hours into? I still can't answer that question. <laughs> um, so there's 20 different endings to this game. And I will briefly touch on all of them, but a lot of them can be summarized up very quickly. Start at the top again. So Isaac and his mother live together in their own house by themselves. Uh, Isaac's mom heard the voice of God and said, and God told her, kill your son. And again, so she tried to. Very into. She's she's like kind of overweight wearing like a pink uh, patterned dress. Her top? Or do you only see her from the waist down? Because you see her legs for most of the game, right? You see... So in the actual gameplay, you don't really see her face. But you in the cutscenes, you will see Isaac's interpretation of her face, as well as her, wi- her hair or are, are her wig. Suppose, like, Does the game imply that she sees herself as biblical Isaac's dad? I forgot the character's name. Abraham. Abraham. <laughs> Um, so one Bible name. Well, very. I mean, the name of the game, Binding of Isaac, is very clearly a reference to the biblical story, the Binding of Isaac, where Abraham hears the voice of God, is takes his son to 
be killed, binds him up yeah, and is God's about like, to kill him. And God's hey, like, whoa, bro. man, I'm, I'm really happy you, you believe in me that much. Don't do that. And here's a goat. Kill that instead. That's, and Isaac's like, whew. Yeah. <laughs> that was a close so one. So that's, that's the biblical reference to the name of the game. And the parable but, is, a, or not, that's it's not a parable, but the story is about that faith in God and trusting in him and being ultimately rewarded for it. And, and this is then a kind of parody of how that becomes warped? Uh, I mean, so I'm just going to go out and just say right now that Ed McMillan emphasized in a lot of interviews or uh, discussions about the game that the game is entirely open to interpretation. However, he does have an interpretation that somebody wrote that he gave his seal of approval on. Let's leave that. And we'll get to that. We'll get to that in the end. But but it is supposed to be open to interpretation, and it is vague enough to come to many different conclusions, uh, which I think is very interesting and lends itself well to this kind of gameplay and this kind of storytelling. And this kind of podcast. So, again, jumping back in, Isaac's mom is trying to kill Isaac. Isaac runs into the basement and fights his way through horror after horror of how his life is. Poop monsters. Yeah, there's poop monsters, there's hanged men, there's dead bodies, there's corpses. Characters from the Bible. Characters from the Bible. Um, You have reference. Yeah, elements from his life. Yeah, elements from his life. Uh, Sheol is referenced, which is uh, hell in the Jewish tradition. Oh, Anyways, you fight, and the first ending, you kill your mother. And you're like, yeah, and it goes into a quick ending where you kill your mom, uh, your mom's about to kill you, but an angel intervenes and knocks the Bible on the shelf off of it and hits your mom and knocks her out, so it saves you. Hurrah! Then the next... Oh, but it's just a dream. Yeah, it's just a dream because he's he's drawing it, and that's one of the things in this game. Then she shows up in the doorway anyway. Yes. So again, like... (laughs) A lot of the storytelling is told through Isaac's own imagination as he's drawing and escaping. So it's almost the gameplay is some sort of escapist fantasy for Isaac as he's oh my God. traveling. Oh just connected that. It's like all dungeons. Yeah, it's like, all dungeons. Like what if the, the, the squares of the dungeons are like pages that he's... Because, you know, yeah. when you were a That's kid cool. and you were playing those old dungeon-based games, you were supposed to make your own map. And you would end up taping pieces of paper together because you didn't know which way your map was going to go. Yeah. So you and I had very different shots. So, any- <laughs> so anyways. I'm looking at Lindsay like, you know what I mean. He's drawing it. And at the end, he's standing on his mom's belly and is like victorious. And he's like, ha. Huh. And it cuts back to real life Isaac. And the door opens and his mom is there with a glint in her eye. And you're like, oh, okay, that's a really scary, depressing ending. But the game goes on. A bunch of more endings. And... You fight your way further and further into the game. So instead of just killing your mother, you end up going into the womb and killing her heart. And then you go even. And, right. and a fetus. And then later, like after her you beat it enough, you womb? kill uh, a fetus. And then. What? I think it is. <laughs> That's weird. It, it's, <laughs> the game doesn't make a lot of like sense like yeah. biologically and it doesn't you know what it's not the kind of game that yeah, i'm gonna demand that yeah you don't you, you're it's not unapologetically doing its own thing after and that's cool and once you get past that you can go either up to the heavens or down to hell and so if you go to hell you can go down there and eventually fight mega satan or you can go <laughs> up to well you fight satan first well, you, yes you fight satan first then you can fight mega is, satan is mega satan like a Mecca? I want Mecca Satan. That's what I want. No, it's just like a There's, giant you know, ram's head with like, it looks bullet like hell. I can, 
I would yeah, like to go exactly. on record and guarantee that there's probably an anime out there with Mecha Satan. That probably, probably already exists. Probably. You probably yeah. own it somewhere. And then if you go up, <laughs> and then if you the other way you go in the gameplay, you can go up to heaven and end up fighting yourself as an angel. And then beyond that, you get. Oh, can we unpack that? We will. Okay. Um, and then after you kill yourself as an angel, you go into a chest and fight a what looks like a blue dead body. So potentially blue, like implying it's that it's asphyxiated. Yeah. And so those are the routes of the game. And then the endings, 11 of them, or 10 or 11 of them, are you in the womb opening up a chest and either getting pulled into it by your mother or obtaining some sort of item that represents pain and suffering Mm -hmm. that you have experienced. Then the game... So there is a mechanic throughout that you weaponize your pain and suffering. Well, very literally, your main weapon is your tears. Yeah. Right. Or but you and you can get like tears of blood. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and the most straightforward upgrades are the ones that make you cry bigger and f- more tears. So you can get right. items like the crown of corn, the, the, the <laughs> crown of thorns, uh-huh. or uh, other references to and, other mythologies yeah. like Polyphemus, which would make you have one big eye with one giant tear. And worth noting that a lot of the power ups physically change Isaac. Yes. And a lot of enemies look like warped versions of Isaac. So kind of continuing with this roguelike tradition of the dungeon forging an identity for your character, mm. Isaac is physically being like developed and he changed. He literally as he goes changes through. based on what he comes across. And he and may end up looking suspiciously like some of the bosses that you fight. Interesting. Which are, I think could be seen as some element of Isaac or his life. And, and some reflection of a version of himself that could exist. Right. And I think that for him, uh, we'll get into all of the, some of the endings in a bit, but these bosses are definitely him dealing and coping with his own struggles and self-image issues, which are something that Edmund McMillan himself has admitted to having and be like, from his previous interviews. Um, I think right now would be a fine time just to like break off and just discuss some of his other games before we finish off the rest of the endings. Okay, so do you think that his other games might give us a better sense of where he's coming from? Yeah, so he had a couple games. Uh, or The Binding of Isaac? Yeah, that reference. he has a fairly recent one, too. He had at least two has, before this came out. So okay. the, there are two games that I think are important for this, and they're called Aether and Timefuck. Of course. Whoa, I didn't even know about Time Fuck. Does he so, work alone or does he have like a team or? You know, I don't know. Okay. I, th- I know that. There's at least one other person one other... who works on most of those. Yeah. Okay. That's, yeah. I mean, I assume other people help at some point, but mm-hmm. I mean, I know, like Toby Fox made all of Un- Undertale on his own, right? I almost said all of Uncharted. Um, He did hire someone to do graphics for him, I think. Okay. Like character design things. Yeah. So like in Aether, McMillan was sta- says in some interviews about that game, that he had a he starts the poem with a poem about being overwhelmed with life and the he game the game with a yes poem? okay so and the, the poem. and the gameplay is where the main character is riding a giant monster that can swing through clouds and through space to visit new planets. This and, sounds way more fun. Um, and so it's a short game. <laughs> this and is it, what I have to make to get it, to my masterpiece. <laughs> it ends with him returning to Earth and destroying it because it this has become so small. way less fun. Interesting. And it sounds like the little he just McMillan himself described it as similar <laughs> to... Is it not? <laughs> um, 
like his own escapist fantasies, like his just desire to escape reality. And it feels like how he leaves the earth, which in this case would be similar to the box or the chest in Binding of Isaac. So there's some kind of escape and, and there's like a trend in these games. There's a, there's an escape. And then from that vantage point, you reevaluate reality. Yeah. And then you pass judgment on reality when you come back. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So in time, fuck, uh, the main (laughs) character, (laughs) the main character, your character, the most marketable game name is depressed with life and his future self arrives and urges him to get in a box. Whoa. This and the box game, is too specific a detail. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why that's why I wanted to bring it up because I think it's very important to understanding the binding of Isaac. The consistency like, of a like box. as far as looking at binding of Isaac, not just as a text, but as a person trying to communicate something about their life to you. Right. And so how what is Well, uh, just to quickly to wrap up time fuck. Okay. Uh, your future self keeps on sending you messages from the future is telling you like you're never going to get out of this box and each level is a puzzle where you have to switch dimensions to reveal new paths. Oh, cute. And just to spoil it, um, there's three endings to that. You can either stay in the box forever or kill yourself or reconcile with your future self to finally set yourself free. Wow. Yes. Interesting. There's right. one of those that I think sounds like a good ending. It sounds just like Celeste. Well, so here's the thing. This is why I think it's important is those games are kind of like the future of the binding of Isaac. Uh-huh. And this story is all about the trauma and the how, how struggle that such a how he ended up in the box. Yeah. Can you tell me about this box? In the binding of Isaac, it looks like a treasure chest like something you find in the Legend of Zelda. How often do you see it? You see it every time you beat the, or get to the end game. Uh, You're talking about the big chest. The, the chest. Well, there's a, a floor called the chest. There's an entire level called the chest, and then there's one called the dark room. And these give different endings where Isaac, after having dealt with the trauma of being in the womb almost, you see some cutscenes after being in the game at, in each of these endings where Isaac is reading a Bible and looks in the mirror and the mirror's reflection shows him as almost a devil, something dark and demonic. And then he goes to the chest in a different cutscene and hops in it. And then later it's just like him in the chest and him like feeling like hyperventilating. And and these are pretty linked too, because after he sees himself as the devil in the mirror, he looks very forlorn and then he looks at the chest and it fades out on him looking at the chest. Then it gets to that next ending where, okay, now I'm, ju- I'm jumping in the chest. How, so are these different? Do you have to unlock each ending in a sequential order? Yes. They, Man, many of them. So the, all of them are in a sequential order except for him getting in the box and him looking at the mirror. You can get those out of order. But the chronological and canon way of it is he looks in the mirror after look, reading the Bible and sees himself as a devil. And then he gets in the box. So that's chronological what happens. Okay. And while he's in the box, he has some visions. He's he slowly becomes a demon and he and I think that's really where it ends before some of the DLC and expansions come out. Where you get to like the the rebirth. There's rebirth, okay. rebirth plus, afterbirth, afterbirth plus. But I mean the mm-hmm. same basic story. I mean as far as what I've seen from the afterbirth con- or the rebirth content it all expounds on the same basic premise, which yes. is Isaac's adventures in the basement or in his imagination give him some different idea of what he looks like in the mirror and or, or how he envisions himself. 
And eventually, this causes him to make to make the decision to get in the box. Right. And so he always ends up in the box, no he matter always, what? He always ends yes. up in the box. And if you get the very last ending of the game, uh, he's in the box, and then it cuts to him outside of the... Or it doesn't cut to him outside of the box. It just cuts to outside of the box. You see his drawings on the wall. It shows his family, his family breaking apart, his dad leaving. He might have had a sister, or he might just kind of have some sort of gender identity crisis. Who knows? But the sister, the, that other either alter ego or his sister disappears, dad leaves, and he his mom becomes mean. He starts viewing himself as a devil, and then it cuts back to the box. Oh, my God. Do you think he killed his twin in the womb? I think that could be that's a, a thing that happens, a, re- right? a reason. Yeah, that's a thing. I, so my thing is... That could be a, one of the reasons I think he could have actually killed her in real life by like some accident. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sister could have died. The more I learn about this game, the darker it gets. I didn't know that was possible. Yeah, no, it's 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 who knows. It's I mean, tough because you do because so much of the game is you inflicting violence on things that look like you that it's hard to tell. Like, is Gosh, this a different? If you person? had is like a me? twin. But anyways, feed into that too. The final ending, like after it cuts back, is your mother approaching the chest, opening it, and it's just you as a skeleton in there. So I think bummer. Yeah, it's a real bummer. But I think it's indicative of Edmund McMillan trying to tell his own story of dealing with his childhood trauma and abuse. Does he? Did has he come out and said that he personally has dealt with that? So the I don't know the, if it's as bad as what happened in the Binding of well, Isaac. Nothing's as bad. I, I as think what this all. There. But has has he said that? Yeah. He, okay. Well, well, hold on. Well, he made the, well he made the decision to not give any official interpretation of his own work. I suspect because he didn't want to go into exactly how much of it relates to his own experience. Understandably, right? So we don't know. We don't know for sure. But as far as like, how does it connect to his own life? Right and. And honestly, I don't want to go too far into that for purposes of this show either. But we do know that someone gave an interpretation about Binding of Isaac being mostly about someone processing child abuse and that, and then they run it through the stories that they read in this book in the Bible and then identifying themselves as the evil characters in the book, leading them to come to the conclusion that they must get in the box and die. And Edward Edmund McMillan said, you know, I don't, I don't rubber stamp inter- interpretations of my work. I want everyone to have their own opinion. I don't want to discredit anyone's interpretation. Which is really cool. That's hard to yeah. do as an artist. Hard to restrain yourself from yeah. doing that. And an important and thing that art can do. So well, it's hard to restrain yourself, but, but with this one, the, this interpretation, yes. he's like, this, this, is, is spot on. this is spot on. <laughs> he said, this is it. Now, worth noting, this, this blog post specifically went out of its way to avoid um, over-speculating about... Edmund McMillan's own childhood. childhood, right. It does say, clearly something went wrong, like yeah. some bad thing happened. So I might have over-explained or not, like, or okay. given it a bit too much, but it is saying, it did kind of reference... Yes. Okay. So, to me, I mean, I think it's fair to say Edmund McMillan has something to say about this box. But yeah. I just don't want to get too far into us speculating about no. what oh, that might for be. Sure. Well, right. And I, I think that it might not even... It is even... interesting, too, that you brought up that the box features in multiple games. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's that's why I think it's really interesting is that 
there it's almost like a story i know that we're getting off of binding of isaac but it's like how he got in the box from his childhood how he yeah. escaped the box and how he dealt with it afterwards yeah and it's certainly like looking at this series of games because like he it's called the isn't it called the basement trilogy uh the basement like collection basement collection yeah includes at least one of those games i think it, it's it's, it's nine it's like nine or so games or something along so those lines all of them yeah um but i mean the fact that they have been put together and called a collection and the basement features as like the title of it and it's does I mean, imply some thematic uh through line there right and so there is that through line that you're saying and i think that that's really helpful for unpacking the binding of isaac for at least it helped me understand the story better because if you don't have some of this it's kind of a gross game yeah that is really hard to stomach i think that's really fun with context well even with context but i think the context helps you i think it it makes you reflect and understand what it feels like to feel like you're put in a box that you can't escape no i totally i appreciate what he did and why he did it i know that it's like we talked about just with the art design and the music and then also your you know fighting gross things everything about this game is gross and uncomfortable and it's not I don't think it's fun to sit in and I think that's intentional and I do think that that is cohesive with the messaging yeah like I think that it's not for me but it is intentional and it is like coherent and I and I respect that aspect of it and and I feel like certainly it would lose something if like we can all see the the Legend of Zelda influences and like the dungeon layouts and and your bombs and keys and stuff. But certainly, I think it would lose something if Isaac's battles with these elements of child abuse and like the these like the coat hanger and like the 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 peeing himself item and things like that. Um, and also, so there's those. There's the various references to abortion um, of either Isaac or someone else that we don't know of. Mm-hmm. If all of these things were represented as Isaac being this like heroic knight fighting skeletons with the sword or something like more palatable, I almost feel like the story gets more gross as a result. Like the expression of it feels yes. weirder because it's almost like it's enabling the player to turn away from something serious and something that should make us feel uncomfortable. Yeah. So I, I do think the game is getting a lot of, I mean, as Lindsay said, it's getting a lot of mileage out of that. What I wanted to ask is, do you think that there's some through line between the original Legend of Zelda and this game? Oh, I'm glad you brought that up. Because I was sitting here thinking about it, and then I forgot that that was a point. And now we're back. It's back in my okay, brain. Okay. I So what I wonder is if the use of that, and this may be a little off of what your question was getting at, but I wonder if the use of Legend of Zelda like motifs, maybe, or mechanics, is meant to convey something to the audience about nostalgia and childhood. Oh, it's yes. linking a childhood experience with the playing of this game. So it's something yeah. that you associate with with that because it's specifically the original legend of Zelda and that kind of mechanic, which by the way is, you know, Miyamoto exploring caves as a kid, right? The original legend Mm -hmm. of Zelda is in itself like an expression of nostalgia and of one's childhood and escapism. So I'm wondering if like you're saying, Isaac is maybe using this, the one narrative structure he has 
plus the other one narrative structure he has, which is Legend of Zelda and then plus the, Bible. the Bible. And he's using, and it's kind of like, you know, when you're a kid and you have your action figures and like one is a Transformer and one is Luke Skywalker and one Sir, is mine were all Sailor Moon. X-Men. Or yeah. And one of them is a Barbie doll that like. Looks like Wolverine. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> yes, I had designated Ken doll whose hair was messed up so he could be Wolverine. <laughs> so all the Kendalls I saw had like plastic hair. No, I had one with like real hair, like not real hair, but you know. Yeah, like red was, hair. Yeah. It would keep and on growing. It was gross. <laughs> no. So I'm wondering if it's like, you know, you take all of your different like very incongruous uh, okay. toys and you you play out the story with them. If that's Isaac taking these elements of his childhood, some of which well, are fucked up, maybe he doesn't even know that they are. Yeah. It's true. Making the story I, I, that. I 100% agree with that interpretation because I think that you have like the Black Lotus for Magic the Gathering. You have some Zelda references. You have references to all sorts of older games in there. So I think that those being like forced into this narrative structure, while they don't yeah. explicitly say anything, I think it does talk about the childhood influences that eventually helped them cope and get through things yeah. or at least get to and, and the box. who the what the identity of these characters are too. Yeah. Because he would, ends up with the conclusion that they're him, I think. Yep. I would say that it definitely speaks to the importance of narratives in our lives, that every time we consume some sort of narrative, it helps us contextualize and understand our own lives and the world around us. And we see this kid who is suffering from abuse, try to use the tools he has narratively without proper guidance or without a good context for them and try to use those to understand what he's supposed to be taking away from. And he kind of stumbles because he is abused and isn't able to identify with what he would think that we would normally identify in those stories. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That he's seeing himself as the villain because that's yes. how he feels as a neglected and abused child. And before we go on to slay the spire, yes. I just wanted to say that like the game has Isaac go deeper and deeper and further down yeah. and further down and he never comes back. Wait, I thought you said yeah. he goes to heaven. He goes to heaven and kills himself uh, but, and but that, ends but up does, in a box. But, it, but it's a linear ascend. journey. In it is a, yeah, it is a linear Okay, okay. But heaven isn't there. He's killing his own idea of himself as an angel. Like I, he's I, never I, going to yeah. be an angel. I was actually going to ask you this. So the, I just did another run of this game because I was like, what, what ending would I get if I just opened this up and played it right now? And I fought. My ending would Satan. be screen one. No, wait. Sorry. I ended up in heaven somehow. I fought Isaac. I saw the ending where he sees himself as a devil in the mirror. What is the ending when he kills the devil? When he kills the devil, he opens up the chest. It flashes across uh, all the different playable characters, which are Isaac, Magdalene, uh, Judas, Cain, and Eve? Eden, Eden and Eve. And then he hops Wait, in the box, uh, the chest, and it's, it's one of the this newer characters. The it's the name okay. of the character. And then he hops in the box after seeing himself as all of that and closes it. Oh, okay. So that must take place after it does. The, okay. So if he goes, so in, in chronologically, he goes to heaven, sees himself as an angel. That doesn't really mesh well with his own perception of himself. He kills himself. He goes, goes into the chest and, yeah. and kills himself as an asphyxiated 
blue baby. Now, isn't it true that if you get all the pieces of the photograph, that's when you see the asphyxiated child? Yeah, so when you finally piece together what is maybe causing the abuse, which is the broken family and his mom taking out aggression on at him. Wait, is the sister in that photograph? Uh, there is no sister in that photograph, but okay. some of the in-between scenes um, of like between lo- loading levels, loading screens have implications that there might be. Is the lost supposed to be some form of Isaac like the other characters, or do you think that's supposed to be the sister? That's a tough one. What is uh, the lost? The lost is like one of the biggest and best kept secrets in like oh, gaming. It was, it was like data mined. I, I mean, yeah, there, it came out. yeah. Edmund McMillan was extremely upset when they they data mined it. He expected nobody to find it for years and years and years. <laughs> um, but the only way you could unlock him was to die as one character. Uh, to a certain enemy and then on your next run die to a separate character with a separate uh, playing as a separate character then like four, two more times I, I don't suppose you know these actual steps uh, I don't know them anymore I was wondering if there's some hint as to who the lost is based on who dies to what well the last one is you play as Azazel, Azazel, Azazel. Okay. I, I'm terrible with I don't pronunciation know. of these names but it's like a flying black demon guy um and you have to die to a certain enemy in hell. Okay. I was wondering if it was going to be like, play as one of the female characters and, and die to a mousetrap or something like that. I don't know. You, you had a, Maybe that's supposed to tell you something. You had to die as Magdalene to one of the infested bomb versions of yourself on the second floor. Okay. Or something like that. Don't take my word for it. Just look it up if you're actually playing through right now. But there was a character that had that was supposed to be very hard he was called the lost and he is just a ghost you can't take any hits as him and it is so i've seen tough. you play as that so before we yes. move on i because i always want to come back to like what is narratively what are roguelike elements oh i do doing? have one more thing too uh-huh. i think it's consistent across roguelikes with this and and i think narratively it sounds like the story reason for you being able to replay it and replay it and replay it is that he's going in and out of these fantasies and trying yes. on, trying to recontextualize himself in this world. Like these pictures he draws or like you're, you're not supposed to take any run of this game as a literal yeah. single shot story. You're supposed to say, okay, these are all iterations of his imagination and his escapism. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. And so- I, and, and I just, to also hit on that, I think it's also just to maybe end or get close to the end of this section with a slightly uplifting note. I think you, at the very end, you have to kill the asphyxiated blue version of yourself. Okay. Um, kill your... T- which okay. I think is actually oh, so uplifting maybe because like I think... opening the box. I, I don't think you ever open the box in here, but I think you are fighting and getting rid of the inclination to just give up and... Just but end that's it. That's interesting. So, so one interpretation I read online, or the the one the one that we talked about, it mentions how the reason the asphyxiated corpse is uh, named with question marks is because it doesn't fit into the fantasy. It's just an ugly piece of reality that Isaac hasn't encountered yet, Ooh. which is his own mortality body. Yeah. Right? So I'm wondering if by killing that character, um, you are actually being in the box. You're seeing yourself asphyxiate and you're saying, I'm not this person either. And so maybe that's what I mean. Like maybe he's opening the box. Yeah. yeah. I think that, that is, 
I think you know what we found an uplifting note <laughs> from the Binding of Isaac, and I think that's the real victory. So, but before but for, we, for the roguelike elements of it, yeah. So it sounds I I kind of feel like what Lindsay is saying here is that where the other games that we discussed, the roguelike elements are shaping the contours of the story and explaining why you're going in doing this or that. Do we think that the roguelike elements in this game are instead a mechanical way of simply representing Isaac going through multiple hypotheticals? Yes, that's exactly what I view it as. I think that you playing through it multiple times is a almost a, a child's way of trial and error through figuring out things and contextualizing some of their own feelings that they haven't yet experienced yet they don't they haven't read a lot of things they haven't experienced they haven't talked or to a lot of things any, or so any guidance or so like I, so i think that every time you play through it is an iteration that isaac himself is feeling and working through to eventually come okay. to the conclusion that i'm putting myself in a box but there is hope that i can open up the box so this is like an artist choosing to paint with oil or, or watercolors or something this is it's almost like we're saying this is Edmund McMullen saying a roguelike format is the way that I can tell this story because it's the only way I can justify using this structure that I'm using. Yeah. Right. And it, it, it incentivizes the player to actually play through things multiple times in a way that is fun and refreshing. But also, if you're thinking about it from a story level, it shows the growth of the character that you're playing as and uh-huh. it's it's oh, incremental and right. it's it's a struggle but a it point. is the growth of your own character because when you play a roguelike almost any roguelike obviously the player is growing outside of the game there's some vantage point you're standing at where you're looking at the game with more and more clarity as you go through so you're saying by in binding of Isaac Isaac is right there with you like gaining more clarity with exactly because he exists outside of the run as well yeah. yes because if I'm we're going to uh, use our assumption that this is just him putting different pieces of yeah. paper together run making his own D&D like for himself with his imaginary yeah, yeah. situation and uh contextual contextualization of his life then yeah it is outside of the game all right, I think we hit a good stopping yeah, point for that. Let's for sure. And now, Lindsay, do you want to tell us a little bit about your so, current obsession? I think we already said after Binding of Isaac, roguelites really take off. Oh, for sure. One of them that uh, begins a whole new subgenre is Dream Quest, which combines deck building elements with. Yeah, roguelite. I had only heard of this like tangentially until like. Yeah. And then today I was like, oh, you brought it up. I'm like, I guess I heard of that. Yeah. And I looked into it more. And this game is essentially Slay the Spire. It just came out all the way back in 2011. Yeah. When you got listeners, when you look this game up on Google, you will see why no one really talks <laughs> about it that much. It's not very it's aesthetically pleasing. Developer graphicsy. It spawned a subgenre of roguelites. So like another hybrid genre. Um, and games like Meteor Fall and Night in the Woods and, and uh, Rogue, it was a Rogue Adventure. Um, Don't basically Starve. The, it created the deck-building roguelike genre of games. Hey, Don't Starve. I don't know. Is that like Night in the Woods? I don't know. No, Night no, in the Woods no. is like straight up like Slay the Spire and Dream Quest. There's no, it's there's, a deck-building. There's roguelike. no deck-building in Don't Starve. Yeah, I know. I was just I didn't know what any of those games were, so I was just yeah. like, oh. It's, it's, I, yeah, I don't think any of those achieved... No, a it, good it, level of popularity. Um, there's a bunch of them, but the the most popular game to do it since Dream Quest, 
um, which was actually a really popular game. I mean, mm-hmm. the guy who made I that did, game. I did at least, I had heard of that. Yeah. I mean, passing. probably from me, because I couldn't shut up about it really? for like seven or eight years. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly, you remember when that game first came out, and I was telling everyone, like, if you like Magic the Gathering, you should play this game. Oh it's so gosh. cool. Yep. And, and then everyone was like, let me look it up on the App Store, and no, Chris, what <laughs> are you talking about? Um, and hey, and I'm justified because Richard Garfield was like, this is the greatest game ever. Oh, that's amazing. And then uh, the people, Blizzard hired this guy, and he works on Hearthstone now. So it's just Hearthstone is Dream Quests, like, uh-huh. of evolution? Like No, 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 no. It's just they were like, hey, this guy knows how card games work. So oh, so he just made, okay, okay. Decks. Gotcha. Um, and I would argue this next game we're going to talk about is the not probably maybe not intentionally, but the spiritual successor to Dream Quest. I can definitely see it filling that that void. It definitely which sleep. is a void. Like no yeah. game has taken off like Slay the Spire has. Oh my gosh! Thank I mean, and thank goodness it did. I will say right off the bat, Slay the Spire does not suffer from the same aesthetic issues. No, no. as what Rogue and Binding of Isaac. Well. I, Binding no, of Isaac. No, no. I think Dream Quest is on a different level yeah. from both Rogue and Binding, Binding of Isaac. Isn't appealing, but it is well done. Binding of Isaac is a fantastic game. Dream Quest is Dream not Quest not well the, done. The graphics are done by the creator's daughter. Yes. Aw. Well, that, that changes. Now you feel like a dick. No. <laughs> it's like no. They're still bad. Art criticism cares not for age. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. So <laughs> slay the spire. I, and you can actually, funnily enough, unlock the dev art for the cards in the game. No way. Yeah. yeah. If, you can make you, it look like Dream Quest? Well, it not. It's, it's still better than Dream Quest. Yeah. It's just for the cards, too. It's okay. not the whole scene art. But after you beat the heart, yeah, you unlock it with each character. So, Slay the Spire. Like we kind of touched on, it builds the roguelike thing with deck building. So now one of the resources you have to manage, you know, you don't have base moves. You just have cards that you're exposed to. Every time you beat an enemy, you're like, oh, here are my options. I'll pick this one. Or I have a chance to get rid of something. When you play it, you have a map and you get to choose. It's always randomized, but you see the map and you can choose different paths along it. And it's also divided into three different acts. So at the start of the game, you can choose one of three characters and we'll dive into those three characters a little more in a minute. But you wake up as one of those three characters, and there's this giant whale guy in front of you. I, I always thought he was a slime. He is described as I a whale. He was a whale. He is a whale. He has multiple eyes. Like he's not a normal whale. He's a cool whale. Okay. I, I mean, again, I also thought he was a whale. <laughs> he looked like a sperm whale with six eyes. But yes. I, but as the game went on, and as I played the game more, I always thought that he had the same kind of eyes as the slimes. He does a little bit, which, I mean, is interesting because there's a whole bunch of lore behind behind her. It's a, it's a lady. Is that whale. a Neow or something? Yeah, Neow. I don't know what the right way to say it is, but I want to be like, Neow. Like, like, <laughs> like maybe maybe like Meow in Japanese. What is Meow no, in Japanese? Nyan, Nyan. Oh, yeah, I guess that too, yeah. Oh, I thought Nyan was cat. What's no, cat in Japanese? No, Neko. Nico, yeah. If I, Nyan is Nyan and Mew are both like sounds cat, of cat sounds. Yeah. Oh. These are like the hard hitting answers that you're gonna get from player I versus know. plot right now. Oh <laughs> okay, so Nyao, not a cat, super cool whale, is like hanging out and she's like, Yo, what's up? Glad you're awake. Here are some options for some benefits. Uh, I need you to go kill some heart. Just some random heart. And I'm like, Oh, 
Okay, thanks, whale. So the idea is you you can choose to give up something and get a big reward from the whale or take a safer reward that has less risk. And after you choose, Niao says risk reward, which is one of you know the big themes of the game. From there, you progress through this very fantasy trope environment. It is a spire. Right. Yes. Don't so you're climbing it. One of the big things they wanted when they talked about developing it, they didn't want to do the dungeon descent. They wanted you to ascend. They wanted you to climb a giant tower. I mean, this mythical kind of tower. I weirdly enough. So I, I've been gradually working my way through the series. Sinlin ascends. Yeah, Sinlin ascends, which is about. Is a it's a bo- yeah, that's a book series. It's about this man who there's a whole bunch to it and I really like it and I recommend it. Is it is super cool. Um, but there's a mythical tower. It's the Tower of Babel, but each level is like a city and crazy surrealist things happen there. So in oh, some sense, yeah, that reminds me of this game. I do note that like that that both the dungeon and the tower are at this point mainstays of roguelike yeah. stories. Yeah. And again, they directly cite that when they are building this game. They're like, we want, we know that descending in dungeons is a big thing. So we're going to climb. I think a lot of what they did when they approached it was they wanted to embrace kind of tropes, but twist them just a little bit. They talked a lot about the characters you run into when they were first making the game. They were generic. It was like, here's a wraith. It's just a ghost guy. Here are some zombies, but they didn't want them to stay quite so generic. So they modified them a little bit. Like, you run into kind of demonic beings and these things that aren't zombies, but they look kind of gremlin-like and slimes. They keep slime monsters like, in there because, of course. Of, uh, less constriction on on needing to have all of the, the standard fantasy tropes. Yes, yes. They wanted to to stay away from the more cliche, you know, genre staples. But I think it's similar enough that the game doesn't give you a lot of explicit plot but uses what you do know about the genre to create kind of a mood. Like there's a cleric, but he's kind of a goblin looking dude. And you're like, Ooh, can I trust him? There are other goblins that you run into a lot in the more story rooms. You've question mark rooms that are events. And just in terms of like knowing what your goal is. I mean, if you're a player and you start an RPG and you see a tower, you know, you need to get to the top of that. tower, Right. Like it's a natural now, I, don't, I don't know if I would call it a trope. It's like a natural form, like an, is a common expression in games for a goal. Right, yeah. So the tower is divided into three acts. And at the end of every act is a big boss. And then you go on to the next act and then the next act. And each, each act kind of has a different atmosphere. They actually said that they kind of built the lore around the atmosphere they built for each of the acts. Uh, they said that they wanted to start with kind of a generic dungeon. So in all of Act One, there's there's a definite color story there. They use a lot of like reds and browns and everything. You can see chains in the background and some things are broken down. So that's their generic dungeon, kind of that brick feel. And then in Act Two, you're in a city. And they said they wanted you to feel like there were politics and like hierarchies in there. Like you can see things are built up a little more. There's cityscapes in the background. It's a little more of like blues and, and don't they have like different enemy types so like you have slavers but you also have 
uh, cultists and chosen ones that look like cultists. So you have yes. like a hierarchy amongst this almost religion that is in the game. Yes, which we'll circle back to. Well, yeah. actually, we can t- touch on that now. They said that the reason they have the so the the cultists are all wearing like bird hats or bird masks, yeah. and they're like caca, and that's their thing. And you're like, that's real silly. <laughs> well, they were- then you get to the last boss, caca. <laughs> <laughs> that is one of the last bosses has like a giant. It is there. It's God. the cultist yeah. with the guy. Well, the awakened so what one they, or something. What they say is that they made the cultist be obsessed with birds. Because everyone wants to ascend. They live in a spire where the goal is to get to the top. So, like, of course they would worship birds. Yeah. Birds go to the top. And they fly. They fly. Yeah. I was like, whoa, that's... I was... The first few times I played it, I was just like, <laughs> they say caca. <laughs> and you can get a relic that is, lets you say caca. interesting, too, that there's an entire cult based around a thing that, uh, that you can confirm made it to the top. Yeah. So like, and the thing that is your goal, which which must mean that cult was probably started by the person who saw that thing go one floor higher than they could go. Yes, and then you're like, like that's that's a hero. Well, and then the other thing, birds. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing Sterling was saying was that in each act you encounter a similar type of enemy that you've already seen, but somehow more difficult and also designed to look like more important. Mm-hmm. Like you can see slavers in act one and then you can see one of their leaders in act two. And that was also deliberate. They had a whole grid from their design process where they showed each iteration of enemy types. And you see not only are they getting harder, but they're getting more important as you get higher up. And I think the most interesting act of course is act three where they said that, you know, they went from generic dungeon to kind of this important city. And then act three, they wanted to be dangerous or bizarre, an area where folks from the city wouldn't dare to go. And you do get this feeling as you get into the third act that it gets a little more surreal. There is a lot of surrealism throughout, but act three has more like greens, everything's the environment isn't as clear in the background. You can't put your finger on like where you are. Well, I mean, too. like you're, mm-hmm. you're in the realm of things that are worshipped by things on lower floors. Yes, exactly. Especially because you're getting closer yeah. to the ultimate goal. Me so much of Saga. Sorry. <laughs> the ultimate goal of the heart that you want to kill. So, and the other interesting thing, it's such a little thing, but you rest at bonfires, of course. And in act one, it's like a regular looking fire. In Act 2, it's got some bluish hues. In Act 3, it's like greenish and in a cage of bone-looking thing. Yeah, the the kindling that you use for the fire is different each time, too. Yeah. So the further you go up, the more divorced from reality you feel the environment is. Yes. Yes. So you finally get to the heart. Well, you get to the final boss of Act 3, and you beat it, of course, first try, because you're awesome. We know one of them is the Awakened One. Which is what the cultists were worshipping, but not really. It's like a man in a weird bird outfit. I don't think that the bosses, because there are nine, right? Uh There's three uh, that you could possibly get at each each act. I don't know how much they say about the story. So we know for the Awakened One fun interpretations of the world. I mean, there's one in, at the end of Act 3 who controls time, and he's, he's the hardest one. He's the worst. The time eater. Oh, my God. Because so you can only play 12 cards, there and is, he's like, your turn's over. There is that story link between one of them, so the, the mm-hmm. awakened one to this religion. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you guys make of the, the donut and the, the die or whatever? I have no idea. 
Oh yeah, it's like a donut and like I a, think that they are nines or eight sided. They're adorable. I think they're cute. I, think, I don't know how they think, fit. I think in. it might be a progression of like the slime bosses. Maybe like could be. Do they fit in the other one? No, no, <laughs> for sure no. I know there's an achievement for killing the donut looking one with the card that is feed, and I like that. Okay, so, so again, the ultimate goal is to get through those bosses and reach the heart. And the first time, the first time you complete it all, you're like, "Whoa, I did it! I beat all of the bosses!" And then you don't fight the heart; it just cuts to a scene where it's like you did X amount of damage, and that damage is your score that you got for that and run. And hits the heart, and then you just fucking die. You just keel over in front of the That's heart. It's just like the end of Dream Quest. And it's like, is it really? Yeah, you fight the master of the dream, but you can't kill him. It's just, oh. it's just showing you how much damage you were able to do before you. Okay. Yeah, that you guys can't believing be a me now. <laughs> Um, so you do. But it's very interesting you, because you die there. Doesn't that or imply pass out. That this tower is either a some metaphysical? Well, being. wait for it. Uh huh. Because then you start on a new quest and you wake up and Niao is there and it's like he doesn't. She doesn't say it exactly like this, but she's basically like, "All right, let's try it again." And as you, the more times you run the route, you realize that. Niao is literally resurrecting you every time. So you go and you die and then Niao resurrects you and you go again. And you can have encounters where people say things like, oh, you aren't going to do anything. You never do. Like you won't achieve anything. Or so you're they not- say things like, oh, it's so good to see you again. So that definitely confirms that like, let's say you're the, like the, the defect or not the watcher, the, the watcher's the, defect, the, the fourth the character yeah. in the deal. The, ro- the robot with the lightning orbs. Yes. Yeah, my favorite. Uh, it would be you. There, there's not just a bunch of defects walking around. Correct. You are the one constantly being resurrected, which yes. is an important distinction from the traditional roguelike, where the implication is there's hundreds, thousands of adventurers who are just being ground into meat right. by this dungeon. No, there is. So uh, when, when one of the tomes that you unlock, it's like one of the optional relics you can get through a side event. Talks about how now is seeking vengeance after being exiled to the foot of the spire. And they say that she blesses outsiders to use for her own purpose. So there is definitely this idea that it is some chosen outsider who has come to the spire. I think the defect's the exception, well, but there's there's a specific memory where Niao kind of awakens the defect, which we'll talk about. And again, when you choose your character, they do have a short description of each of them. We'll get there. Oh, okay. Yeah, do you we'll get there. Do you think that this spire is supposed to be like an extra dimensional space too? Because this is just a normal Possibly. spire in the world. But when you go in, there's like, you see like cities and stuff in yeah. the background. So I kind of got the feeling like, well, if there's a world outside the spire, they they clearly don't know that it's more than... Just a There's power. definitely something mysterious about it. I, I'm not going to get too much into the latest character, the, the, watcher, the watcher, but I think her calling, her moment is she's like flying around just being a watcher, doing watcher things. And she has to go to the spire because the other watcher who was assigned there yeah. has like mysteriously disappeared. Yeah. So they call it a suspicious spire or something. Yes. Like that. So there's definitely some weird insular magic happening there. It's also not clear why Niao was banished to and, the foot of the spire. Means, it's not clear whether Niao is a good force or an evil force. You just know that Niao has chosen you and has the power to continue to resurrect you. And don't you think that that confirms that this spire, like the inside of this spire, 
is not generally known? Because I feel like it would be more yes. than just a suspicious spire. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously the idea that no one escapes the spire if there's a religion around ascending yeah. it. There are just slavers in the spire. So people are obviously captured and taken. It's dangerous. There are monsters. There are thieves. There are some friendly things that you run into and encounters, but they're also very mysterious. It's You never have a sense of, oh, this is a friendly face. And funnily enough, the character that you see consistently is the merchant and they wear a mask. So you don't really see their yeah. face either. And you actually get a better deal in the game if you wear the smiling mask, which yes. means he doesn't see your face either. I think that the other thing that might imply, and this is me just reading into it, is that there are multiple merchants. Yeah. And when you wear the mask, you're like in the merchant guild. But anyway, so I, I really want to sit in this, this idea of resurrection because I know we touched on it for Binding of Isaac, how narratively they come up with with a context for that yeah. resurrection and it's that he is simply thinking through multiple versions. And in this, the resurrection is kind of adding to the mysterious sense of the game. It actually says in that tome that those resurrected by now remember only fragments of their past selves cursed to fight for eternity. So it doesn't sound like a great thing. Oh, and your character isn't supposed to really understand that yeah. they are continuing these runs. Remember how we talked about how the structure of a roguelike usually lends a story toward the character finding themselves in the world of the dungeon. Yeah, because their identity is constructed by what they find there. Yes. Right. So that kind of reinforces that because you literally are losing pieces of who you are. Yeah. And as you go through and you collect cards and change the way your character behaves in the spire you are kind of rebuilding their identity. Yeah, there's a, there's one of the, I never use this encounter because I always leave shit cards for myself, but a possible event that you can trigger is called a note for yourself and you're going through the game and it's like you find this card shoved into a crack with a note to you from you and I always just leave a basic card because I'm like, haha, what a good excuse to get oh, rid so of this like card. that's like the Sheeran the Wanderer's storage house. Yes, but it's, I mean, it's random. You're not guaranteed to be able to access it and from one run to it's another. It's just one card and you can leave whatever you want. Like yeah. So card. sometimes like if you're one I just character. just strike in there. <laughs> if you're a character uh, that has like, each character has their own set of special cards. So if you are one character, you can put in one of his special cards. And when you're playing as a different character, she could take out his special card and put in one of hers so that you can okay. start trading across. But again, you may well, do eight runs in a row and not so run into this. Interesting to me because it's a note to yourself. Yes. The note to yourself could have been a note from the defect, even though you are the watcher then. Yes. I don't think you're meant to take it like that, though. But could you? Like, there are things in the game. Who you I think there are, are things in the game that let you access the cards from other people. Mm -hmm. But each playable character has their own backstory. And one event helps you understand more about your origins and backstory. The sensory stone or something? Yes. Like the prismatic yeah. or. No. It's the, the one where you can choose colorless cards. There's one that like gives oh. you a flashback of yes. some event you yes. saw. Yes. You're thinking of the prismatic, uh, the prism that lets you get other cards. That's oh, different. yeah, yeah. So I think the resurrection thing is interesting because it's obviously contextualized. Oh, the card thing. The thing I really like about that flavor-wise is it always the encounter always ends with you walk away shaking your head and thinking, what is going on? 
And I like that some of these events convey this sense of confusion and unease. Like your character is just like, I'm just trying to kill this heart. What's yeah. How, how is there a note from myself? And there are things in there that are like, you get lost in a room that's just stairs that lead to nowhere. And you can pick up madness. Like madness is a thing in the game. And you know, you can make deals with vampires. You can make deals with ghosts. Speaking of deals, the currency is still gold, right? Yeah. Or, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's just gold. So the resurrection thing, I think, reaches its, you know, pinnacle. It, when you do a run after, you have to finish the game once. And then after that, you can unlock keys. So you can do different things that are kind of, you have to make a sacrifice. So one of them is you have to fight a harder version of the elite and you can get one of the keys. Another one is you have to go to a bonfire and you don't get to rest or upgrade. You have to take a key instead. And another one is you open up a chest and you can't take the relic. You have to take the key instead, which chests are very rare. So So you you assemble all three of those keys Uh and then you can unlock the heart at the end. I find that so interesting, right? Mm -hmm. Because the game is asking you to choose between successful but cyclical existence in this tower. Yeah. Like, in other words, just accepting that you are a resident, an eternal resident of this tower, and giving up some of that power, some of that ability to live here successfully with potentially leaving the tower. Yeah. it's. I mean, and I think that circles back to, to the whole thesis of risk versus reward. You're saying, okay, well, it's a little riskier. I have to pass up on this thing right now but i get a bigger reward in the end if i can make it there yeah and if you do so and it's called when you pick up the key from the fire it's called recall which i think is interesting it's called recall like the so, the option so, so it's rest upgrade and then you or you can click yeah, rest, recall smith recall oh so the implication might be that knowing who you were might be the key to getting to the actual heart of the dungeon or just remembering your previous runs too okay because when you fight the heart if you're not doing the real fight if you didn't get the key it says why do you feel like you've been here before like thousands have been here before that they're in this cycle no remember because like now it said they can't remember who they are they don't know they're in a cycle they're confused when they run into people and they're like oh we meet again and you're like okay whatever crazy yeah like everyone in the tower sees you going through this again and again and again. Yeah. And some people are like, it's like the cycle of you're not going to make it. But the keys are like your reminder that like the world is an illusion and you're actually part of Brahman. <laughs> so if you have the keys, if you've assembled the key and you beat the act three boss, then you go to act four. Okay. Which is just fight the heart. right? Well, if only essentially uh, you have to fight an elite boss before you get to the heart and you don't get to heal between them. And it's the two guards of the heart. And I think it's meant to be the valves left, right valve. I don't know. Could be. Who knows? But it's, it's the spear and the shield and it's a whole new mechanic. You now in the middle of them and you have to juggle which one you're facing to reduce damage, all this stuff. And then you go to the heart and the heart is, Hard as all get out. Like you can wipe the rest He's of the dungeon. Hard <laughs> as all get out. You essentially need to have a broken build by that point to kill the heart. Yes, yeah, and you need to have developed an identity more by than then. Three hundred. It's true. You can't do more than three hundred damage to the heart at once. So per turn. Yeah, per turn. Mm-hmm. So you also can't just get an infinite deck and be like, 
this is me. I just yeah. have claws and it's fine. So it's, it's really difficult. It's really interesting. And then if you defeat the heart, you get a brief cutscene, you know, quote unquote cutscene. You see three, three images panels, yeah, of your character leaving the spire. Got so it. you do by remembering something about yourself or something about your journey. So, so the spire is a yourself. giant trap. Like the spire is a thing yeah. that invites you in with its mystery, um, with this thing to solve. And if you don't remember who you, this is really, this is a, literally a Hindu story, by the way. Really? Like there is a story about a person who gets sent out into the desert and they live through all of these lives and they keep doing it. Oh, and then no. like they like lose everything in one of their lives. And then someone calls to them and they're like, hey, I sent you out to get some water. Where'd you go? <laughs> and then he comes back. He's like, it's been like five seconds. And he's like, all of this was a dream. And I was so that is my fear with it about virtual reality. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, yeah, it's like a Rick and Morty episode, yes. I think. Um, and so, yeah, the spire is kind of like the material world. Yeah. And I will say, so the interesting thing is you don't see anything about Niao at the end. Who is the motivating factor? She is the one resurrecting you. She obviously has some goal. It's never clear what the heart does or what the heart represents. I think that's a little open-ended. Mm-hmm. So similarly to Binding of Isaac, it is open to interpretation and your own interpretation is equally valid. Yeah. I will say, yeah. I, I didn't bring this up at the beginning, but the creator of Slay the Spire name checks Binding of Isaac as one of his inspirations. Makes sense. Because one, I think an amazing game. In one interview, so there's a guy, oh, I wrote down his name, but I'm bad at names. Anthony Giovanetti. Giovanetti. I'm going to go with. He, in a, in a video interview, mentions Binding of Isaac. His, the guy who worked with him on this a lot also lists Binding of Isaac as very inspirational. Uh, the other thing that Anthony names as an inspiration is Netrunner. Yeah. He is like the Richard Garfield card game. Living, yes. The living card game. He, oh my gosh. He runs the biggest fan site for Netrunner. Like that. He's like, that's my thing. That's who I am. I mean, I guess it makes sense for the card game aspect of yeah, it. Yeah. He's real. He likes Dominion a lot, which guys don't play Dominion when you could play DC deck builders. No, play Dominion. <laughs> Dominion is good. good. But I mean, I my guess it's like, hey, your, your deck's all going to start this way and changes. Let's go. So deck builders were a, a big we'll use a chapel. Deck, and you know, him. deck builders and roguelikes kind of go hand in hand thematically. Yeah. Because a deck builder is about constructing. Uh, Taking person, what you come across yeah. and having to build something out of it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to note uh, something about the aesthetics of this game, by the way. So obviously this game benefits from the fact that this tower is almost like this artificial like pocket universe. And so anything can be there. Yeah. And what I find interesting is in this attempt to avoid the standard fantasy tropes, I kind of got the feeling while playing this game that it really gets at what Dungeons and Dragons originally was, which was 50s, 60s fantasy which is usually like a lot of science fiction mixed in. Yes. Like Dungeons and Dragons, you're supposed to find a spaceship at some point and laser beams and this, this definitely shit. I mean, this has robots. One exactly. of the first boss that they created for the game, I forget the name of it, but you can fight it. It's one of the three bosses at the end of Act One. It's like the robot y one, the yeah. Sentinel or something. That's okay. But they said that the idea was that it would be like a robot so that 
you could see it falling apart into pieces and just interpret that between runs, it's just being rebuilt. Or like the slimes divide oh, yeah. and divide and they just come back together and they make a boss between so your runs. So they wanted the bosses to seem appropriately cyclical too. Yes. So everything about it has that feel. So that's kind of the overall plot. But I think it's interesting to dive into the three playable characters as well. So the first one that you play as is called the Ironclad. He's like a dude in kind of red pants and he's got a face mask on. I think the interesting thing is you don't really see the faces of any of these main uh, playable characters. The Watcher, you can see her face, but she's blind. Well, she has a mask covering her mouth. Yes. So she's got she's, like a ninja mask. And then situation. you can see her, her like nose up, but yeah, she's a blind yeah. ascetic. Or how do you say that? Ascetic? Ascetic, yeah. So Ironclad. And here's another thing they said. They, they didn't want to do like a traditional, like they didn't want to do Night Rogue Wizard. So even though they kind of have those archetypes, they made the ironclad a little bit different. He definitely, you have to balance between. It feels more barbarian-esque to me. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. That defense and that strength. And then they made the silent, who is the rogue, but she's kind of like poison and shivs, throwing little shivs. And then the wizard is the robot who just channels energy and just lightning anyone with lightning is automatically the wizard i feel like so the ironclad is the first one the knight who's not a knight and each one has a starting relic and his is burning blood where you heal for a little bit at the end of every fight so they say that he when you start as him you are the remaining soldier of the ironclad so you're like the last one and it says that you sold your soul to harness demonic energy which I thought is probably your starting relic. That's you have this burning. burning blood. Yeah. Oh, I I read that as like a very shonen manga as <laughs> my aura burns. I, mean, I, I was like, my blood too. cauterizes my wounds. <laughs> Just like a lightsaber. So then there's an event where you can, and I think you only can get it in act three. What? where you recall something about your past as you go through it. Mm -hmm. And this one, the ironclad recalls, it says a demonic creature towers above you, wings spread wide as it howls with laughter. Dead bodies of a tribe surround you while the village is engulfed in terrible dark flames. So I feel like the implication there is you thought you were selling your soul Maybe you actually sold all of your friends and family to this demon. The demon calls out, taunting you, you really are the strongest now. And then he laughs, and then it says this laughter echoes forever. Yeah, that's I, I, you know, I love that type of like the wish fulfillment, like monkey's paw, genie, like. And also adds an interesting element of let's let's say you knew what this tower was. If you're the what's his name again, the ironclad, Ironclad. why would you go into it? Uh, No, why wouldn't you? Well, into it. well, why would you go into it unless you've lost everything? Exactly. Yeah. You're like, you know what? I, I'd rather not know who I was. That too. That's a real possibility. So that also so like, kind of makes it a real act of, what's what's the word I would use here? Like, like self, de- not denial, but like, maybe, or you know what? The opposite. Acceptance that you would have to go and affirmatively take yourself out of You just of want to lose yourself. To go back to this reality you didn't want to face. Yeah. And so the other interesting thing about that that line too is that that demonic creature covers the village in terrible dark flames and each character has a relic that they can replace their starting relic with. So you can replace your burning blood with 
another kind of blood that just heals black, from more. Black blood. Is it just called black, black blood? blood? Yeah. And the relic is like this purplish black. So I wonder if that makes it even more explicit that your relic is from that is linked to that demon that you've made a deal with them and they give you this blessing quote unquote. So you're leaning into your deal with the devil. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Hmm. Or you repeat your mistake. Maybe could be, could be. So then there's the silent who I'm going to plug because she's my favorite poison and shivs all day. And she's got this green cloak and this cool, it looks like an animal skull. It's, yeah, like a, like a cow skull almost um, yeah. with horns. And that's her mask. So they say that she is from, she's a deadly huntress from the Foglands. That's what you get about her. They never really talk about what the Foglands are or Except where they're from. Except that they use poison and shivs. Right. So then her memory is that the remains of a ghostly creature sink slowly into the mud before you, barely visible in the moonlight. You have proven yourself amongst your sisters. It's got kind of an Amazon vibe there, and I like that. Standing victoriously, you wait in silence as the others ceremoniously place the creature's skull atop your head. The ritual has concluded. You head towards the spire. So that sounds like she has done something. they just feed silence into this spire. Well, and it almost, but she had to like fight to win the right to go. Yeah. And she get like, it's, that's why it gave me hardcore Wonder Woman vibes. It's like, you won the contest. Here's our ceremonial garb. Now go beat some people up. Why? I don't know. that's interesting. That's Maybe her awkward. people are also trapped at the bottom of the spire, but it says you head towards the spire, not or up it. It might be that they think the spire is something it's not. Maybe it's Maybe also a religious pilgrim of sort. Yeah. yeah. So I thought, I mean, that one's super interesting. I don't know what her relic is about. It's is, just the snake ring. It's and the she, ring of the snake and then becomes the ring of the serpent. Are, are right. But I don't know. Well, I think. There are characters who resemble any of those motifs with the cow skull or the snake. Yeah, there's one. There's the, uh, there's in the act two, there's like a shaman with a, with like a hood over it and it's sitting atop a giant oh, yeah. skull. Oh, oh, and you know what? That okay. boss is a female. Yeah. So that could be could be a previous silence. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And just to touch a little bit on the ring I of the snake. I haven't thought of that. I'm so excited. Aren't you glad you talked about yes. this? Yes. And, and and touching on the ring of the snake, rings the snakes the, the, the imagery of this ring is a snake eating, eating its, own its own tail. tail. So it's an Ouroboros. Yeah. And Ouroboros See our God of War episode. Well, yeah, I know. I I, I you could. Um we could also just keep on talking about it here. Um <laughs> and an Ouroboros oh. is you know, there's no start, there's no end, and once you get into it, it's, it's like kind eternity. of symbolic it's like of the spire. you entering the spire and expecting to be here for eternity, potentially, yeah. if you're yeah. chosen to be. Um, to get dark, him. a little dark for a second, the spire is also a real good metaphor for a roguelike or a game that you really like, and you are willing to spend your whole life. It's playing this game. It's uh, I've put it's a lot of hours. Interesting parallel. We had this conversation before we started recording about the games we've put the most hours into, and I think Slay the Spires. It's getting it's up getting up number there. five for me. Six. I did definitely Possibly. replay Dark Souls in a cyclical fashion. For I've seen you do it all years. <laughs> yeah, I'm still playing Dark Souls. Yeah, right, right now even. <laughs> even like, just got a TV yeah. set up. You gotta stop. Making I'm holding the controller behind my back. Edit all of these out. <laughs> We're actually editing a lot of game sounds out. <laughs> it's impressive. Thanks so, to our editor. Us. <laughs> one yeah. more question, by the way. Now, now that we're well, it's kind of meta topic. We have one more character to go. Oh, through. that's right. The I mean, because we're not doing the Watcher. Oh, the Defect. So the Defect, who is a robot who aesthetically looks a lot like some of the robots that you see throughout the Spire. They're like 
gold and blue with big round eyes and they shoot lasers. So the defect, my favorite <laughs> laser or oh, the defect or lasers, the defect, ah. <laughs> both. I like, <laughs> I like lasers. So his like synopsis at the beginning is that he's a combat automaton that became self aware. And when you recall from your event, it's like written, it's not code, but it's meant to look like robot thoughts. So it's like, yeah. Objective, enforce balance, error, balance not found, objective, unclear. And then he becomes, he's like, warning, large object approaching. And then it's Niao. And Niao's like, hello there. So it's this idea that maybe the robots are programmed to seek balance. And for some reason, there isn't any. Non-combat or non-defect versions of yourself? Yes. So... I, I mean, I think I think, I think they that's just, they just attack on sight, right? Yeah. yeah, I think that's an interesting little bit to explore because if he's trying to seek balance, and balance was killing anybody that goes towards the yeah. top, is that supposed to say that balance is the cyclical nature of things? That like life it comes at you and you kill Ooh. it, and that life will just keep on happening like that. So him like defending this. Perpet like perpetuity. Well, right, and and that, so that's like the the inhabitants of the spire and the robots' viewpoint of it. Whereas the defect looks at that and says, "This isn't what I want. I want something more than just the cycle of life and death. I want there to be maybe a meaning. I want adventure a, in the a, great wide somewhere." He's like Robo, <laughs> and like uh, actually, he reminds me a lot of Blame the manga blame about I don't know the, what that is. It's an infinitely expanding city that has expanded so much. It's like the world of this manga. So it's, so it's like Ravnica and it's, magic. It's like, well, it's like what if human progress represented by like office buildings and robots and all of this like post diesel punk, like factory innards. What if that was progress, but progress was like a cancer and it just infinitely reproduced itself mm. forever until it took up the size of like the solar system or more. And all of humanity lives possibly far from each other in various places even, in this giant I don't structure. even know what this rabbit hole is anymore. And um, it just reminds me of that because there's all of these robots who protect um, the the access to the internet that could stop this world okay. from infinitely expanding. Yeah, that's and fair. And the main character of Blame is a robot who is not working correctly, kind of, and his mission is to stop the world from reproducing itself. Infinitely. Okay, yeah, yeah. Maybe that's why I like the defects so much. Who's your favorite, Sterling? I like them all. Okay, that's all that's right. a cop out. Uh, wow. I, I, Ironclad is a lot of fun. That's good. That balances us. That but balances us out. I, I lean Ironclad or Defect. I don't like the Silent. Oh my god, I love the Silent. I am I'm at the highest Ascension level on the Silent. I mean, I'm open to to being sold on the Watcher. I haven't tried her yet. All right, we have yeah, this, we have it on Switch. I've actually so avoided owning this game myself. <laughs> I've I see why. Played other people's copies of it. It's, it's a very good. Good. Good idea. It's a very good game. Any? I mean. Any other thoughts on it? I know oh, balance, like risk reward was a big thing. So, yeah, I I also have a question okay. too. What's your question? Sterling go. What do you think the story does through its roguelike elements? Well, why is the roguelike aspect of this game important for its story? I think that the story aspect or the, the roguelike aspect connects in with that idea of resurrection. There's definitely a mood and a feeling you get yeah. of 
being unsure about who you are. Yeah. And this repeated nature of it helps you really figure it out with almost a surgical precision where I see three cards and I'm like, okay, I can pick up that one. And then here are the relics I'm going for. And here are the other things. Here's what I know this will have synergy with. Yeah. Here's how I know these can combo. And it's, it's rewarding you for that. So just like it is your character and your character is learning more about themselves. The more attempts they make at this journey. I feel like there's also an element of like adventure lust and the, and the cyclical yeah. nature of the tower, it, it's this feeling of being stuck in a cycle of always wanting to see something new is kind of a good match for the structure of a roguelike. Yeah. It's like a commentary on the fact that we play roguelikes because, you know, so, there's something exciting to us about the idea of an adventure that will never truly end. Right. I mean, I or will be different from everyone else's, and and also, it's yeah, always different from somebody else's, I guess. But it's also just ever changing. It's you don't remember it. Oh, Your yeah. character doesn't remember it, but you, as the player, grow and learn yeah. and un- better understand who the character you're playing as is. I think, or think or is this like the heart at the end is you destroying the self, like the the ego, to find it. Who it, you really it could are. be. But then I, I mean, it's so explicitly linked to Niao at the bottom. Yeah. That whale that, one I don't understand. that wants you to go fuck up that heart. But you know, it's not the first time in a game that you explore some product of your subconscious, subconscious while also a floating whale is trying <laughs> to get you to escape it. Or are you talking about Pinocchio? Link's Awakening. <laughs> I know. whale and Link's, Link's Awakening. Yeah, it's a skyfish. You are exploring Link's subconscious. Yeah, and I know that. I don't know where the whole dream going. is a reflection of elements of your life. Where just where's the whale? The windfish is the last windfish. Thing. My bad, everybody. There, after you beat the last boss, you are trying to wake up this thing called the windfish, and it is the thing that gets you out of the dream. Interesting. Which at first makes it seem like the windfish is a metaphor for yourself. So you're like, oh, I wake up the windfish, I wake myself up, mm-hmm. right? And then you wake up. And you're back where you started before the dream began. You're on a raft. Mm-hmm. I don't know why Link's just on the ocean or raft, but whatever. <laughs> um, or maybe he's on a boat. And then you look up in the sky. And there's the You see fish. the windfish. All right. So the windfish is both. both this gateway to the your own subconscious. Yeah. But also somehow you. That's fair. So do you think I, the spire is actually just your like each character's own subconscious? No, I I don't. I, don't. I think it's more than that, but I think that the spire Fire exists both on a physical level and also some kind of spiritual level yes. where it, you can't, there is no, I, I truly believe there is no end to the spire. The only way that you leave the spire is by deciding that your life is more than just this adventure through the spire. Yeah. I, I mean, like the dark tower. Almost. I agree in that there's like, <laughs> it's almost like a spiritual place. Like everyone is. You, it's like the mist of some sort. You know, you go in yeah. and everyone is stuck in the same surrealist place. So they're like, I don't know, let's build a city here. It's almost like Valhalla for an adventurer. Yeah. Because it's an infinite adventure. Yeah. But it's also like you're still right stuck. here on in the world. Like it's something that you can leave if mm-hmm. you choose to uh, go back. Mm-hmm. So the other thing I think that is important to this game in that it's a roguelike is the concept of risk-reward. I said it's very explicit in the game. And I think that is central to a rogue-style game in that every 
the game is really about making decisions. Yeah. It's not about the mechanics, like your timing or your, your directional control or anything like that. And I think the heart of a roguelike is making decisions is saying, yeah. do I pick this up? It'll be easier to beat things, but I'll be more, more vulnerable. Do I eat this now and heal yeah. now? Or it, it, do I like wait a series of, I mean, in, in not, not like literally, but in practice, it is a series of decisions you can't take back, which have consequences that will last the entirety of the experience. I think I like this game because I like making decisions. <laughs> <laughs> and if you make the wrong ones, it's okay. Yeah, that's true. It's comforting. Well, I think uh, we've covered these games today fairly well. I think we, co- I think we covered it well. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to raise you one. I'm going to drop the fairly. I think we covered them fairly. <laughs> yeah, that's what I said. Fairly. The soup is well. just right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, listeners, why don't you send us your theories about what's happening in Binding of Isaac, Slay the Spire. Or Rogue. Rogue. Sit down and play Rogue. Good luck. Ancient Domains of Mystery. <laughs> yeah, or any other roguelike that you <laughs> that you are a big fan of. Let us know. There are so many roguelikes. Yeah, if you want to fight with Chris on, what was the one? Rogue, Rogue Legacy. Rogue Legacy. Rogue Send us oh, your no. email. Oh, man. People are going to be mad at me for that. People, I haven't played it. I can't weigh in. a lot of people very happy. So I enjoyed it. I understand why you don't, though. <laughs> Do you really? I think we need another hour after this. Oh, my gosh. But uh, send us your questions, your theories, your comments to playervsplot at gmail.com. Check us out on Instagram at... Uh, also player player versus versus player vs. We're very consistent. And, we're on, and we're at on. Twitter at this exact same thing. Yes. Player vs. Plot on all the social media, on our Gmail. We're easy to find. Easy to get hold of and easy to keep listening to. Um, Also, you know what? Send us some suggestions, especially for lightning round episodes. We like doing these. Yeah. These are a good format. We can cover more stuff. So they're really good for your suggestions. Yeah. If you're sitting there thinking, oh, here's a fun game to dive into, but it's too short. Guess what? It's not because we just spent a long time (laughs) on Slay the Spire, which I saw posts that were like, does this game even have a plot? And I was like, I should let them know. Yes. Yeah, I think it does. I I was skeptical at first. I know. So, yeah, I, I, even, I even beat the game and I was like, I still don't know what happened. <laughs> yeah. But and now I'm sold. Yeah, yeah. It's like very subtle storytelling. But yeah, if you, if you want us to delve into the story of Tetris and other puzzle games going forward, oh How boy. Here we go. You know, <laughs> We're locked in now. Challenge accepted. <laughs> I'm willing to make Chris and Lindsay do all the work. The rocket ship. I have played a lot of Tetris <laughs> in my life. I, you know what? I bet I've played more Tetris than anyone else at this table. I doubt it. However, Chris uh, has played the most. Pew pew. Yeah, there it is. I've spent a lot of time getting destroyed in Tetris. There was a year of my life where I had a desk job and just played battle Tetris. An office assistant. Yeah, in college and. I played so much Battle Tetris at, at the desk, and mm. it was amazing. I well, got- whether we're unpacking the plot of Tetris or other things, stay tuned, stay in touch, and keep listening as we wrap up Season 2 of Player vs. Plot.